Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. This is episode number 46 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today, we're speaking with Paul Kingsnorth to discuss one of his recent pieces in Orion Magazine earlier this year about how he's tired of the mainstream environmental and sustainability movements. And then we're going to be speaking with Michael McGonigal in a full extended piece of an interview re-recorded for Radio Ecoshock, which aired earlier this year on Radio Ecoshock. This is the full interview where Michael McGonigal goes into more depth about how he sees governance structures changing and people starting to implement his idea of exit environmentalism. After both of our interviews, we have a very special guest. Many of you know and love him and he's a very special guy, but we'll wait to introduce him until after we speak with Paul Kingsnorth and Michael McGonigal. And what we're going to get into in both of our interviews today in various ways are limitations that environmentalists have faced in truly thinking about the full repercussions of our industrial capitalist system such as where the logic of capital comes from and how to challenge that, as well as some of the ways that the environmental movement can start redefining itself to become more useful. And as Paul Kingsnorth talks about, in many ways, the environmental movement has won. More people now would profess to care, quote unquote, about the environment than ever. But with that success comes some problems that we're going to discuss with him. So without any further ado, let's jump right in and hear what Paul Kingsnorth and Michael McGonigal have to say. Paul Kingsnorth, you're a writer, poet, and journalist, with your work appearing in The Guardian, The Independent, The Daily Telegraph, Daily Express, and Le Mans, among many others. But you're also a scythe instructor and an environmentalist, at least until recently, and that's what we're here to talk about today. So thanks for joining us from Cumbria in the UK. Well, thanks for inviting me. No problem. So the phrase environmentalist carries with it a particular values and expectations. What do people mean when they say that they're an environmentalist and what experiences in your life led you to become one? 
environmentalism for me when I was younger seemed to be a political movement, I suppose, a political attempt to change the way that humans related to the rest of nature. Obviously, at root, sparked by the fact that we are destroying much of the rest of the natural world at a very, very fast rate. And I, I was struck, I was doing some research on this recently, actually, on, on these rates of loss. And I'm 40 years old this year, which is always a bit of a turning point. And I was looking at the rates of change and the rates of loss in the 40 years that I've been alive, and they've been astonishing. I mean, we've, we've had this incredible rate of the loss of biodiversity. Something like 25% of the world's terrestrial wildlife is estimated to have been pushed into extinction in that time. It's quite remarkable what's been going on. And, and that 40 years of this real acceleration of the destruction of the non-human world coincides with this movement that we can call environmentalism, which I suppose you could trace back to the Limits to Growth report, which came out in 1972, which is when I was born, which was produced by the Club of Rome. And it was the first document produced by economists and people who were supposedly serious and pretty much in the mainstream, which said that there were limits to growth and predicted some of the things that would happen if we didn't do something about that. And their predictions still seem to be holding up quite well. And so we've had about 40 years of this growing consciousness of the finite limits of the natural world and the fact that we're destroying a lot of the ecosystems of the earth. And now we know that we're changing the climate as well. And we appear to have a mass extinction event underway and all this kind of very depressing stuff that we hear about all the time. So environmentalism for me was always just about a very basic level, trying to stop that happening. And it still is about that, really. But I, I think for me, I would separate the instinct that made me want to do that from the, the sort of fate of the movement that's tried to do it, if you like, because the instinct that made me want to do it was simply having a childhood where I had lots of connection with, with the outside world, with, with nature, really. I spent a lot of time walking and camping in, in the mountains and in the hills, and I spent a lot of time around wildlife, and it just had, a, had an effect on me, which became politicised as I grew into an adult. And I wanted to do something about it because I could look around me and see this destruction going on. So I've done everything from direct action, lying in the way of bulldozers, to writing reports, to writing books, the whole sort of gamut of it. And I hope I've done something useful. And I think the environmental movement as a whole has been incredibly useful over the last 40 years. My critique now, I suppose, if it is a critique, and it's quite a personal one, is simply that it's in the mainstream anyway the environmental movement, the sustainability movement, whatever you want to call it, has become something that I don't really recognize and isn't really doing what I joined up to do, which is why I've started to have my doubts about it. What is it that you joined up to do? Well, it's difficult this because I think you have to step back and look at the situation we're in. We're in the situation where we've got all of these kind of forces all converging at once. So we've got six billion people on the planet and it's going to rise to nine to 10 billion people. That's a huge amount of strain on ecosystems particularly if we want to bring all those people into a sort of middle-class consumer lifestyle, which we apparently do. Um, we've got the climate beginning to change already. We've got this apparent mass extinction event underway. We've got our energy supplies peaking. We've got any number of things going on at the same time. So we're in this kind of perfect storm, if you like. And it's very, very difficult to know what to do to prevent that from happening. Now, like I said, I mean, what got me into environmentalism was a very basic and simple and possibly simplistic idea that we have to protect nature from being destroyed by humans and by human industry. And that means that we have to, A, stop doing the destruction and B, start working out how to live differently. And within that, there's a huge range of things that you can then talk about and do. But it seems to me that the, the sort of mainstream of the environment movement now has sort of morphed into, almost accidentally, into a group of people whose main aim appears to be sustaining our current lifestyle in the face of things like climate change, rather than sustaining natural systems and the, the wider natural world. It's become very anthropocentric, very human-centric, rather than ecocentric, if you like, it seems to me. And that's just really started to bother me. <laughs> I mean, if we take climate change, climate change is an interesting one. 
Right. The green movement has, in this country anyway, and I don't know what it's like in the States, but I get the impression that in the States and in Canada it's, it's similar, um, has almost had this total focus on climate change to the exclusion of everything else for the last 10 years or so. Um, because it's such a, you know, it's a big and frightening problem. But the way that we're talking about it now, it's as if we have to try and stop this enormous thing from happening. The reason we have to stop it from happening is because it's going to threaten the civilization that we live in. And if that means that we have to move to huge renewable energy projects, which, for example, are going to cover the mountains and turbines and dam the rivers and fill the deserts full of giant solar mirrors and all the rest of it. In other words, industrialize the wilderness and industrialize the wild places that we're supposed to be protecting. Well, that's just a price we have to pay. And, you know, what is it a price we have to pay for? It's a price we have to pay for trying to keep our lifestyles going. And it seems to me that because environmentalism has become so mainstream and so successful, which is a good thing, it's had to buy into the ideology that it initially questioned, which is that we have to keep this form of civilization going at pretty much any cost. And the only question we have to ask ourselves is how we're going to change the way it gets its energy. And to me, that was never the point. And not only was it never the point, but I don't think it will work anyway. So I've started, I suppose, to have real problems with this thing we call sustainability, and maybe this thing we call environmentalism as well, even though the original things that motivated me to get involved in it still motivate me now. And I think it's important also, obviously, not to generalize too much. I'm not suggesting all environmentalists think like this, or even that most of them do, but it's certainly the kind of mainstream message of the sustainability movement that's out there at the moment. And it's become a real problem just for me to have to uh, sort of identify with, I suppose. So you mentioned climate change, and there's a lot of environmental actions that target climate change, you know, climate action, all, all of these different marches and messaging. And on one hand, nothing has really happened in results of a lot of those actions because there's been no international movement on climate change, and there's been very limited local progress, at least in a lot of places in North America, on climate change issues. But on the other hand, it is a horrible, catastrophic process that's going on. So why shouldn't we talk about climate change? Well, I mean, I think obviously we should talk about climate change. Nothing wrong with doing that. That's not the same thing really as imagining you can stop it. I don't know. I'm, I'm reading an interesting book at the moment about the geological history of the planet, which is useful stuff to know. When you get a grip of on the sort of 4,000 million years of the Earth's history, you see that climate change event is quite a common thing. And it's happened many times in the past. And it's happening now because we're chucking all this stuff into the atmosphere and we're moving to a very carbon loaded atmosphere of the kind we've had in the past. And we see it as a catastrophic event because it's going to be catastrophic for us. But for Earth as a whole, it's just going to be another change. So it's quite useful to keep that in mind. But it's going to be a major, major thing for us and for the ecosystems that we've grown up with in, in the Holocene, if you like. Um, so my problem is not talking about climate change. Of course, we should talk about it, although not to the exclusion of everything else. Because if climate change, for example, were to disappear tomorrow, if we were to wake up tomorrow and find out that the whole thing had been a hoax or an accident, we still have to deal with the mass extinction that's going on that we're causing now. You know, we still have to deal with the erosion of the soils and the acidification of the oceans and all the other stuff that our economy is causing. So climate change is one symptom not necessarily even the biggest one. But my, my point isn't that we shouldn't talk about it. My point is that it's happening and we can't stop it happening. And, and one of the reasons we can't stop it happening, I think, is that we're all complicit in it. And I don't think this is something that we acknowledge enough and I don't think it's something environmentalists acknowledge enough either. We have this sort of rhetoric, don't we, the 1% and the 99%, and it's very common kind of activist rhetoric. We're the good guys and we're being oppressed by the bad guys at the top and they're changing the climate and taking our money and we have to stop doing it and we need a movement to do it. But the reality of climate change is it's much more complex than that. That stuff works sometimes for some things because some things are like that. But with climate change, it's we're, we're looking at something which, which is caused by all of our activities. I mean, here we are talking over the internet across three different nations using extremely high technology and lots of energy. 
you know, we're causing climate changes. We do this. We're part of the problem but at the same time as we talk about the solution. So it's not the evil bad guys up there. Yeah, the government should be doing something about it. Of course they should. But one of the reasons they're not doing something about it is that they know that if they put in place the kind of stringent taxes and limits on flights and limits on fuel use and all the rest of it that we'd actually have to do to transform ourselves into a low carbon economy, there'd probably be a revolution because people like this stuff. And we've got this contradiction at the heart of all of us, including those of us who consider ourselves to be environmentalists, that we're part of this machine, but this machine is destroying nature. And it's very difficult. Once you accept that, honestly, it's very difficult to continue with the rhetoric. And I think that's the main reason that we're not going to stop climate change, as well as the other things, the rapacity of capitalism and all the other stuff, which is true. So my, my case isn't that we shouldn't be talking about it. My case is that we shouldn't be talking about it as if it was a winnable campaign, because we've pushed it now to the point where we're going to be moving into a very, very different world that we've created, and we're not going to be able to control it. And it's going to be very, very much harder for us. And yeah, we should try and uh, reduce our emissions and all that stuff. It's important to keep doing that. But we have to do it, um, I think, in the understanding that it's going to be too late to stop a lot of the damage. And that's a very difficult message to get across to somebody who wants to be positive and also is trying to run a public campaign. This is another problem with campaigning in general. If you're trying to persuade people to support your campaign and give you money and, and, and help you persuade governments to do things, you can't tell them that actually it's too late to stop a lot of this stuff and the best we can do is kind of mop up the last bits because they don't want to hear that. None of us wants to hear it. And I think we hear a lot of talk about climate change denial. And I think climate change denial is something to some degree that we're all in, you know, because we are part of the problem. And we're not going to stop much of this from happening now. It's too late. And it took me quite a long time to accept that and admit it to myself because it's not the kind of thing that you want to talk about or think about, really. I have come to the conclusion that that's the situation that we're in now. And so I think it's worth thinking about what we do next and how we react to it. Coming at the issue of climate change from that angle, saying it's gotten really bad, so bad that we're not going to avoid it and there's catastrophic consequences coming along and the only way to solve it is dramatic change in our lifestyle. What do you tell to all the climate scientists out there or all the people who are working on you know, renewable energy technologies or you know who are working on monitoring the oceans and just continually put out further and further bad numbers that show how horrible the acidification issue is? What do you say to them about the issue of climate change to keep them motivated in that kind of scenario? Well, the climate scientists know all this stuff. I mean, the people who are actually working at the hard edge of this, um, they know how bad things are. They're, they're quite aware of the facts. They don't need any, any sugarcoating, in my experience. Um, and I, think it's, I don't think we should be aiming to keep people motivated, actually. I think we should be aiming to be honest. I don't think we ought to be acting like politicians all the time. And I think that's another one of the things that's moved me away from kind of activist environmentalism, which, you know, like I say, is still a very valuable force, but it's got on a kind of global scale in terms of climate change. You've kind of identified the problem there because we want to keep people motivated to keep fighting and keep trying to act and try and stop it and all the rest of it. Well, if we don't believe it's actually possible, then we're just lying to people. So, you know, I'm not interested in keeping people motivated to try and do something which I don't think is going to be worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile trying to move away from fossil fuels. We've got to do that. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't do anything. What I am suggesting is we have to understand that we've created a whole new world that we're now moving into. And we're not going to know what the consequences of that are. And we have to understand also that it's our whole way of life that's the problem here. It's our attitude to the natural world. It's our high technology society, which lots of us like and we're all part of. And we're in the middle of that. And we're part of the problem. And we don't really know what to do. One of the things that interests me is what happens when you admit that you don't really know what to do. We're all kind of encouraged to have all these easy answers all the time, to offer manifestos and to say politicians need to sign this, that and the other and that'll be fine. And actually, we don't really know what to do now. Um, none of us do. 
And the climate scientists know very well how bad things are. And they're the ones who issue these warnings all the time. You know, I don't think we have to offer people false hope. I, I don't think it's a useful thing to do. So as you mentioned before, so much of the environmental issues we face today are about lifestyle. And we as humans think that we are the most important species on the planet and that there's a common theme throughout our culture. And so many times we only see ourselves and our priorities as the most important. And yet we're destroying 25% of the Earth species, as you said. Is our lifestyles really worth the price that we pay on the Earth? Um, well, they're obviously not, no. But this is a very old problem. And I think the civilization that we've created now, or that at least a quarter of the planet lives in, lots of people don't live in it, is hugely destructive and hugely energy intensive and hugely sophisticated and gives us lots of things which we really appreciate, including, you know, good medicine and healthcare and the internet and all the rest of it, which are genuine human goods. But they do that, like you say, at the expense of everything else that lives. And no, it's not a good exchange. But once you've gone this far, you can't step out of it very easily. That's the thing. Once you've got a model of society, a model of civilization that's cut you off from nature to a great degree and replaced nature with technology and with human culture, we're in a situation now where most people in the so-called developed world don't really have much contact with non-human nature most of the time. It's very easy to shut it out. We're not connected to it. So it, although it might intellectually matter to us, it doesn't have any kind of emotional resonance that you know the, the forests are being cut down as we speak and we can't really see it so we know it's a bad thing but what are we going to do to stop it anyway people want to stop it people want to stop climate change they don't want to destroy the natural world most people have a, a sense of nature that they want to protect and preserve but they also have a sense that they want to have a comfortable life you know they work hard and they want to play with their toys we all have that so it's a difficult exchange and i think that our challenge to some degree is to come to terms with that massive cultural problem that those of us in the west have got it's going to be put into relief over the next few years because our culture is starting to fall apart. It's starting to overreach itself and the economy's crumbling and all the rest of it. We can see that happening now. And so we're going to be put into a situation where the goodies that we've been promised in exchange for this system are not forthcoming anyway. And things are going to get quite interesting. But it's, it's a difficult one to think about, really. Definitely. And we're in denial about so many things about the economy, about the severity of climate change and so many other problems that we're currently facing today. Why is it that we are in denial and what is it about our culture and ourselves as a species that's allowing us just to participate in the system that's chugging along, destroying our way of life? Well, I think everybody's in denial to some degree about things that are uncomfortable to them, aren't they? I mean, we all would be. I mean, it's quite common if you get a, a very serious illness, for example, or if somebody you know dies or is ill or some tragedy happens in your life, which happens to all of us at some stage, just denying that it's happening is a very natural instinctual reaction because you don't want to have to face all the horrible stuff that's going to come out of it as a result. Nobody does. And it, it's like that kind of on a planetary level now. We just don't want to talk about it. I mean, the climate change denial movement is astonishing. It's very big. It's very powerful. And yes, some of it is corporate interests trying to pay people off so they don't have to change. But a lot of it actually is not that. A lot of it is individuals who just don't want to have to deal with the fact that the whole life that they've taken for granted is going to come to an end and is destroying the natural world. They don't want to have to deal with it. So they just invent facts, which means that they, don't, they won't have to. Um, and that's just a kind of bigger version of what lots of us do about lots of things all the time, I think. And one of our challenges is overcoming that. 
So what role do you think that media plays in the whole environmentalism movement? Media definitely plays a role in setting the agenda as well as what people focus on. And it really plays a role in breaking down these complex issues into manageable pieces for individuals to swallow. What role does media play in getting this message out? And how does mainstream media contribute or not contribute to making these ideas into realities for people? Well, I mean, there's more media than there's ever been. And you know, the messages are out there now. It's quite interesting. I used to work on a newspaper in England nearly 20 years ago now, actually. I was obviously very interested in environmentalism and climate change and all that stuff then. And it really wasn't anywhere in the media agenda at the time. It's all over the front pages all the time now. It's quite interesting. But at the time, it was regarded as something a bit weird and wacky and fringy. And, you know, the media are just people. They just hunt in packs. And if something's being talked about by everyone else, then they start talking about it too. Uh, and it's changed a lot now with the internet, with social media and, and with, with programs like this, where there are so many channels now to get information out there that you can always communicate. But I think it's the, it's the way that we communicate that's the issue here for me. One of the things I did when I came to the conclusion that environmentalism wasn't for me anymore was that I started this project called the Dark Mountain Project. And I started that three years ago. And it's, it's, a, it's a literary project. It's a writer's project. It's an artist's project. And it's all about asking a question about what kind of art and what kind of writing and what kind of culture you create once you stop denying the situation that we're in. In other words, if you accept that we're in this age of loss, this age of consequences, that these collapses are starting to happen and we're going to have to live through it and we can't stop a lot of it. How do you react to that? What should writers be writing on? What role does culture have in actually trying to interpret that? And coming at that denial from a cultural angle is, is what the Dark Mountain Project's about. And we produce books and we run festivals and we have a website and all kinds of stuff. And there's a lot of people around the world, including in North America, who've got involved in it. And I think the reason they're interested and the reason it's made a bit of an impact in some circles is precisely because the sort of media communication of issues, if you like, is, is missing a lot of stuff. There's a lot of communication of facts out there, but there's not much questioning of stories. And one of the things we say at Dark Mountain is that the whole of the world is built on stories. All cultures are built on stories. And you touched on a few of them just now, this idea that the stories, for example, of progress and stories of human centrality and stories we believe about how our technology will get us out of all fixes. All cultures tell themselves things about who they are, which help them to kind of get through the day. And our culture's stories are all about success and progress and, and technological triumph. Uh, and those stories are hitting a wall. And a lot of denial is going to come about over the next few years about those stories too and about the fact that they're not working and a lot of people will be pretending that they still are for a long time, but they're not. And we need to start thinking about what new stories we're going to tell ourselves about how we're going to relate to ourselves and to nature in the new world that we're creating now. Do you think it's possible to use projects to actually start building some sort of grassroots change in the way that we see ourselves as a species and, and how we relate to nature? Because as you were mentioning, so many of our stories, and I, I talk to so many scientists and hear from so many, you know, read in biographies of scientists that they read science fiction when they're growing up, and it inspires them to jump into a life of studying physics or, you know, working for NASA or whatever it may be. And those stories are always filled with technological triumphalism and all of these fabulous images of what it means for human beings to develop technology and go into space or develop intelligent computers. And is it possible to juggle not only the severity of the situation that we're facing, as we were talking about earlier, with creating a compelling story that can pull people in and actually make them excited about dealing with a lot of the challenges that we're facing today? I don't, I don't know if it's possible, but it's a big challenge. 
Yeah, well, it's one of the things we're trying to do with Dark Mountain. I mean, the, the project is not about trying to change the world politically as such. It's not, you know, we're not saying let's all write stories about climate change to try and stop it. But I do think that one of the ways that we're going to navigate through the future that we're building is through the stories that writers tell writers tell and artists tell and, and just I mean everyone tells actually because we're all creative to some degree um, the stories that we tell about who we are and there are many different ways to do that and like I say we've published a couple of books and we're just doing a third one now which try and put some of these new stories together there's a lot of very interesting writers out there actually taking on this stuff and we've had some really very good content for our books and I think it, um, I mean it's interesting what you say about science fiction for example because we published a piece in uh, our first book actually by somebody who, who wrote a very good essay about the role of science fiction in, in this whole collapse narrative. I suppose there are broadly two types of science fiction. There's the sort of techno-optimist kind that you were talking about, but there's also the dystopian kind too. And they've always gone along with each other. If you look at a lot of the stuff written by someone like Ursula Le Guin, for example, she wrote some great stories about the dark side of what humans would do if they got into space and started colonizing other planets. And of course, there's any number of dark sci-fi films from Terminator to Blade Runner about you know how this thing could go wrong. So it's it's a way of exploring any number of possible futures. But it's, it's actually a good example, that kind of writing, of a way of trying to juggle a cultural response to the way we are. And I think that the more it becomes obvious, and it's becoming increasingly obvious now, especially to young people, that the old system is falling apart and the old world is dying and something new is being born and we don't know quite what it is yet. The more that becomes obvious, the more people are going to get involved in thinking about these questions and trying to write these stories and trying to take action that is not the same old action, but is something new and quite genuine. And it's going to be quite interesting to me, for example, living in Europe to see where this whole Euro crisis goes at the moment, because we've got whole countries going bankrupt over here. We've got countries in which half the young people are out on the streets and they haven't got jobs and a lot of them haven't got homes. And the whole system that they were promised when they were growing up of you know working hard and going to university and earning money and, and the economy will keep growing and technology will get better and better and all the rest of it it's turned out to be completely wrong and there's going to be whole generations of people who are just promised something it didn't happen that's starting to happen everywhere now and when that happens to people it's going to be very interesting to see what they do because they're starting to question the stories already and it's quite common now to see people questioning the neoliberal stuff that we've been that's been shoved down our throats for the last 30 years about growth but they're starting to question the wider stories as well about progress and what that means and tie that up with climate change so there is some really interesting stuff going on it's a question of how it's going to pan out I think it's really important to not overestimate the power of what a narrative can really do to a culture and a society. I mean, with even with this show, we have now very, very similar power to what radio stations 30 years ago would die to have. You know, an international audience with listeners all over the world, an audience that's just building and building. And now that fringe media stations like this show and other shows like it can inject their narrative into the mainstream... Is this a growing trend of how the culture is going to reshape itself? Is this going to help change the way that people think just by telling different stories about the way culture can be? Well, I suppose we'll have to wait and see. We have to bear in mind that most of the world isn't on the internet still. But I think there's a huge potential for getting this stuff out there now in, in a way that there wasn't before. Um, but I also think that if we're talking about stories and narratives, that this stuff doesn't start to work people don't start to want to talk about new stories or listen to new stories or anything until they've got a good reason to so you can tell as many stories about how the world should be different as you like but until things change i think quite radically in people's lives they're not going to be in a place where they want to hear the stories i've, I've really noticed that with dark mountain because we started off in 2009 and we wrote this manifesto which said look things are falling apart you know pretty much all the stuff we've been talking about for the last half an hour 
and we need a cultural response to this. So we're starting a writer's movement and a cultural movement. You know, do you want to join in? It was just a little self-published pamphlet and it got picked up all over the place. Thousands and thousands of these things went around the world and it's on our website for free and people read it all the time. And the, the reactions were interestingly mixed. There were some people who thought this was brilliant uh, and they were just what they'd been thinking for ages and they were really glad that we'd said it and that we'd created a space that people could come and talk about this stuff in. And then there were a number of other people who thought we were completely nuts, thought we were doomers and collapsitarians and all sorts of amusing names we got called. And they said, you know, what is all this rubbish about collapse? The economies aren't going to collapse. It's not that bad. This is just nihilism. You're just giving up, etc. Three years on, it's really interesting to me that nobody says that anymore. And we don't get any of those criticisms about being doomers and about being silly and about making silly predictions that aren't coming true because over the last three years, that collapse has been obviously playing out in people's lives. And so we've got to the point now where people want to listen, not just to the stuff we're doing, but generally to criticisms of the economy, the way the economy's run, criticisms of what our values are and all the rest of it. And people have been criticising neoliberalism for the last 40 years. But at this point, when it's obviously falling apart and it's not delivering, this is the point where people start to say, OK, I'm, I'm willing to listen to that now because it doesn't seem nuts anymore. You guys were right after all. I just think you have to get to that point where people are, are willing to listen and then things start to change. And it feels to me like that's starting to happen now. Uh, police have fired rubber bullets and tear gas to disperse angry protesters are thronging the streets of Spain. Uh, dozens of people injured and a number of activists detained during the latest nationwide anti-austerity demonstrations. In a major show of strength, hundreds of thousands have been taking part in the protests. Uh, people marched in 80 cities across the country to protest against more suffocating austerity which is to come. What we're seeing is a massive transfer of private debt into public debt. Um, and that's, that's where it really begins to harm the actual citizens of Spain. Th this sort of, this, these plans uh, are not even being done on a large enough scale to really have any effect, uh, any positive effect for, for sort of working people in, in, in Spain. It's just something that's going to, basically like I said uh, several weeks ago, it's just an effort to buy up toxic assets uh, that have no value, never had any value, um, and have actually been, you know, the tool through which uh, citizens in this country have been um, conned. When you take their food, you take all that they have, you take their, you know, homes, um, they, they, respi they respond quite viscerally. I mean, yesterday, uh, you know, uh, we, what we saw in Madrid, for instance, wasn't uh, violent anarchists in a group that decided to burn a bunch of dumpsters. Uh, what we saw were, you know, police uh, charging against other police, uh, protesting police. Uh, we saw them charging against firemen and women. Uh, we saw them working against public sector, uh, charging against public sector workers and chasing them through the streets of Madrid. And you know, neighborhood neighborhoods in Madrid, the actual people that lived there were actually throwing flower pots from the balconies at the police. Now that's a qualitative change from what we've seen over the last year uh, in Spain. And as we're coming into the election, there may be some more money printing and fiddling with statistics and so forth. So I think the market may actually rally a bit more. But it doesn't change the global picture, which is essentially for a global economic slowdown. And eventually, I think that in the next 12 months you will be able to buy most markets 
at the lower level than today. Not just the Spanish, but people across Europe are getting more and more disappointed with their leaders' attempts to deliver solutions. Artistic Sana Boyka talked to one Austrian who's already created his own doomsday survival kit. It seems like a place where the grass is always green and where every cloud has a silver lining. But even in this idyllic setting in Western Austria, there are fears of an economic doomsday. For the last few years, Mikhail has been converting his house into a fully self-sufficient residence and his reasons are purely economic. The worst case scenario that we're preparing for is the total collapse of the economy. There would be problems with food, electricity, water supply. So I want to make sure we could wait out this time when money will be worthless. While this scenario may seem too apocalyptic, Mikhail believes the euro collapse and the ensuing social upheaval is a matter of when rather than if. Our politicians keep talking about decreasing debts, but what they do is just approve new loans. There are no new steps, no new solutions on what to do about this whole situation. The rude awakening is coming. We all hope to postpone it, but eventually it'll come. As long as credit grows rapidly, that makes the economy grow. And uh, however, the day always comes when credit can't expand any further and then the new depression begins. And at some stage the central banks, particularly the good central banks, the Bundesbank for instance, when it gets its independence back, is going to raise interest rates and, and take the credit out. When that happens, we go willy-nilly and we can't prevent it into depression. And I think you just simply can defer but you can't prevent. We, the depression, and I agree with you, there's going to be a depression. It might start next year, might start the year after, might start in five years' time. But we can't prevent it. And probably, the more you defer it, the, the worse it's going to be. Get, yeah. yes. You are listening to Extra Environmentalist number 46. And today, we're talking about redefining environmentalism. Do you think there's a way to start convincing people that this isn't just an economic crisis, that this isn't just a bank crashing, that this isn't just another ton of CO2 that's being emitted into the atmosphere, that it's all part of this greater collapse narrative? Because I have many people who I can talk to about these issues and they'll say, well, that's so far away. When I talk about the unemployment issues in Spain or Greece it, here mm -hmm. in Vancouver, it doesn't seem like that, because even though there's definite problems, we have a massive housing bubble that's bursting here, they will say, we're not Spain, we're not Greece, so we don't have to face the same issues. And so to me, you know, to that person, it doesn't seem like it's the collapse of industrial civilization that, that's playing out. What would you say to something like that? Well, I think the collapse of industrial civilization is something that will probably play out over centuries. So it's not something that people are going to experience at a global level anytime soon. I used to talk about collapse quite a lot, but I'm, I'm beginning to think it's an unhelpful word in some ways because it implies an event rather than a process. You know, collapse might be something that happened overnight that you would see, whereas it looks more like a rolling breakdown to me. But, you know, it's interesting. We're in a full-blown crisis of capitalism at the moment, the like of which we haven't seen since the 1930s, and it may even be bigger than that. And it's really interesting to me, as I say, over in Europe, that we constantly hear that it's the end of this thing and it's not going to get any worse, and then something else happens. And people are constantly predicting that it's, it's bottomed out and it's going to get better now. And it doesn't. It gets worse. And exactly the same thing happened after 1929. It's really interesting. I came across a very good graphic recently that someone had done on the web 
which was a chart of the things people had said after the 1929 crash. And you've got about three years or four years of quotes from economists and politicians about how everything is getting better from this point onwards. And we've hit the low point and, and it's definitely not going to get any worse and we shouldn't be hysterical. And, you know, at every point, the economy just keeps going down and down. So I think that people tend to just react to their own experience most of the time. They're focused on their own lives and their own communities, and they, they're interested maybe in what's happening elsewhere, but it doesn't really affect them, or at least they don't think it does. And you can't, like I say, I think you get to a point where you're ready to listen to this stuff when it really kicks in that there's something quite big happening. Because we tend to assume that there'll be glitches and they'll get fixed, because often that is what happens. You know, there'll be a depression, there'll be a recession for a year or two, and then it'll go away. But this is something much bigger than that, and we don't really know where it's going. But until people really start to see what's going on, they won't listen. Nobody in Greece really was listening to criticisms of capitalism until a few years ago. Now they're all talking about it. It's very easy for people to galvanize around a large political figure or somebody prominent in the media. Does this change have to come from somebody that's larger than life? Or does it start with individuals in their homes and, and making the changes that we need on a small scale before we can take it nationally and larger and across the world? I think we're dealing with a cultural problem here. I think what we're talking about, when we talk about our culture in the West, which is increasingly becoming the culture of the rest of the world as well, we're looking at a culture of, of consumer isolation, which cuts us off from the rest of nature and provides us with shiny toys to play with, which are very nice. And, you know, it gives us some other genuinely good things too, like I say, healthcare and education and clean air, well, most of the time, which are valuable. And we like those things, but there's a huge hole at the heart of that culture. And it, it's prepared to destroy most of what else lives in order to feed itself. And most of its people don't really care. Or if they do care, they don't do anything. And that's a cultural crisis. And that's not a cultural crisis that any political leader or political movement is actually going to be able to solve. That's a cultural crisis that is going to take a very long time to resolve itself either through the whole system collapsing and us having to try again, or through us going through a very long, painful learning process of how we can stop doing this. I, I think that the, the useful change comes from the unglamorous process of just trying to live differently and work things out and talk about how things could be different and write new stories and try and live in a decent way, not try to be too purist about it and to be honest about how difficult it is and how none of us are saints and all the rest of it, but just to try and actually pioneer things at quite a small scale actually in your community and with your friends and on your website or whatever you're doing you know show people that new things are possible try and write new stories talk to other people who are doing stuff and be patient because people who are talking like this at the moment like us here are in a tiny minority globally and maybe we always will be but we certainly are at the moment and there's not going to be any huge political figure who's going to come along and suddenly magically save us it's really i think a question of just trying to get to the root of what the problems are and then just trying to demonstrate that it's possible to see things in a different way and to live in a different way, while acknowledging that there's going to be all sorts of difficulties along the way. It's just a long journey we're on, a very long journey. It's not going to end anytime soon. A lot of people look at the challenges of climate change and of peak oil and, and of all of these problems as something that needs to get out there and be solved and turn to renewable energy technologies, whether that's the vision of wind turbines on all of our roofs or solar panels in the desert or whatever it may be. We are always grasping at that one solution that's going to make sure that we don't have to deal with this problem. And a lot of people in the mainstream would see, I'm going to start living differently and withdrawing from this collapse of civilization because it's just going to happen as walking away, as turning your back on the problem and just walking away and resigning yourself and dropping out of society. 
do you see living in a different way and trying to start creating that new culture as the most important thing that we can be doing? Or is it kind of like withdrawing and turning away? Well, I think everybody's got to find their own path. And one of the things I say at Dark Mountain quite a lot is look, we're not being evangelists here. I'm not telling anyone they should be doing what I'm doing. Um, I'm not presenting some manifesto for how everybody should live. I'm just really talking about what has made sense to me. There's a lot of value in activism, and if people want to keep on being activists, then they should keep on being activists. It's not, I, I'm not going to stop them. Uh, and I'm not talking about withdrawing or dropping out of society. It's not possible to do that. We're all part of society. You can go and live in a cabin in the woods, but you're still going to be part of society. You know? You're still going to be using petrol, and you're still going to be eating food, and you're still going to be occasionally going to the shops and using a telephone. And you can, there's, no, there's no cutting yourself off, and you, you shouldn't want to cut yourself off anyway. It's just a question of trying to make sense of this mess that we're in. And you talk about renewable energy technologies. I mean, this is my problem with what the sustainability movement has become. It's reduced this whole cultural crisis that we're in, This all of these questions about how to live and how not to live and our relationships with nature and each other and the scale of the society we're living on and the commodification of our relationships and the commodification of nature. All of this stuff has been reduced to simply a question of technology. It's just people saying, oh, well, if we can just get enough turbines up and shut down the coal-fired power stations and have a few arguments about whether we should use nuclear power or not. If we can get that done in time, then we've solved the problem. And you haven't solved the problem. You've just replaced one technology with another one. And if we had widespread use of renewable technologies instead of fossil fuels, we would be destroying much of nature just in a different way. You know, we would be covering the wildlands in turbines and roads and pylons. We would be filling the seas with barrages. We would be damming the rivers. We would be covering the deserts with mirrors. All of these things have an environmental impact as well. It's just a different kind of development. It's business as usual without the carbon, I call it. And it's just, it's not the point. I mean, sure, it's a, it's a techno fix, if you like, and maybe it will work, although I don't think it will because it's not happening anyway. But it's, for me, it's not the point. Um, for me, the point is that the culture has a, has a sickness at the heart of it, which we have to examine. And we have to try and cure ourselves of somehow. And that's a difficult process. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend I've got any easy answers or any answers at all to that. But I think the first thing to do is just to accept the depth of the problem and the depth of this, the mess that we're in and the, the reality of uh, the fact that we're moving into a new world and live through that. Because it's quite possible to do that. I mean, people have lived through economic collapses any number of times in history. You just have to deal with it, really. And we're going to have to deal with this, whether we like it or not. We can put up as many turbines as we like, but at this stage, it's really not going to make a lot of difference. Yeah, and undoubtedly, humanity is going to live through this crisis in some form or another. As harbingers of this crisis, we have a vision of the future where that most people and most mainstream media doesn't really have. Do we have a duty as these foreseers to guide people into the, this future, to provide visions of what this future can look like? Is this our responsibility as people who can kind of see the future? Well, I mean, I, I can't see the future. If I could see the future, I could win the lottery. It would be great. And then I could buy myself a large piece of land and live on it. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's that sounds like I mean, fun. <laughs> well, it does. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we can't see the future. All we can do is look at what we think is going to happen based on the trends at the moment. And then all we can do is, is tell our own truth about it. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want people following me. That could end up being very patronizing. I mean, I'm personally, I'm just on a journey, um, as most of us are, into trying to find out what this thing is and why we've got ourselves into this mess and how I can live through it. Given that I'm, you know, I'm 40 years old, I live in the middle of this machine, I've got young kids, I've got to deal with it. I'd, I'd like to stop as much of the destruction as possible, and I'll keep trying to do that. But I also have to accept that a lot of it isn't going to be possible at this stage. And it's a difficult thing to do. But I think all we can do is just keep telling our truths. I mean, you know, here you are doing it with your work, and I'm trying to do it with mine. And there's a lot of people out there doing this stuff now. There really are. 
And as you were saying, you know, the internet brings plenty of its own problems with it, but it does really allow us to get in touch with loads and loads of other people who we would never have previously contacted, who are talking about these things and working them out, writing about them and doing things practically about them. And there's a lot of great stuff going on out there that we can connect into. And I really think we just have to keep grinding away at that. And we have to constantly keep questioning the stories that we're told that have got us into this position in the first place. A lot of the challenges of facing issues of collapse brings up issues of what it means to live on this planet and the meaning of life itself. And one of the things that we've covered on our show recently are a lot of the suicides that are taking place because of debt in not just India and developing nations, as can happen when farmers get overloaded with debt through you know terrible circumstances. But even now in Greece and Italy, we see people committing suicide because of the economic system and because of the debt that they've taken on. And a lot of the reason that they're doing that has to be something about the story and the meaning of their life that they pull out of their economic context. And so many of our generation, the generation that Seth and I are a part of, we're in our late 20s, has been sold this glimmering vision of consumerism, of going out and getting a job and flying around to all the world cities and you know working in this shiny office in beautiful downtown district and being able to buy these consumer goods so easily. And for for our generation, that really is, in a lot of ways, what's taken on the meaning of life. And even though more and more people are waking up to the emptiness of consumerism, there's still a big portion of our generation's story that's wrapped up in this materialist consumerist economy. And I don't know how we can actually start to challenge that issue because it's so deeply ingrained. Do you have any insights into how we can start finding meaning in a collapsing economy? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, I'm you know, I'm lucky because I'm not really living in a collapsing economy yet, or at least not as collapsing as Greece is. I mean, we've got plenty of problems in Britain at the moment, but I'm not personally on the street, and I'm not personally homeless, and I'm not personally starving, and a lot of people are. You know, there really are a lot of people in, in parts of Europe now, and America, and Britain, who are really on the edge of this, and it's going to get worse, I think. I, I can't offer any advice to people who have to go through that. I mean, who knows what any of our futures are. I think that the dream of consumerism is the dream of an easy life. And it's a huge trap because what it sells you is basically a huge package of debt, cheap money, fake money, it turns out, that you're supposed to take from the banks and spend on stuff you don't need or spend on an education that costs you a ridiculous amount of money that you spend your life paying back or buy yourself a huge house that you can't really afford so that you have to work a job you don't really like so you can pay your mortgage off. And that's a difficult thing to do. But then when the system falls apart around you, you're left with this real crisis. And a lot of these suicides are coming out of people who just haven't got anywhere else to turn. I mean, they've got a huge amount of debt they can never pay or they lose their homes or they lose their families and they're just in the worst situations you can be in and things like that will always happen when systems crash and that's the kind of thing that leads to the end of the dream of consumerism because you just see that it, that it's a lie and i think we're all getting to that point where you know we did have a decade or two of easy cheap money which allowed us to buy easy cheap stuff manufactured in sweatshops that we didn't have to think about and buy houses that we were convinced we could afford even though we couldn't and now it's all falling apart it's going to be messy. Well, it is already messy. And there's no, no advice, really, I suppose, you can give anyone to, about living through that, except that it just changes the way you see the world, doesn't it? It always does that. It changes the way that you relate to your society and does it in a very brutal way. Collapse is a brutal thing. Very, really, very hard for people to live through. So do you think there's any way to change the scale of the endeavors of society? Is our current way of existing as a species on this planet just too grandiose and too large? 
Well, and as a species, we're existing in lots of different ways. Western industrial consumerism is one way, but there are still plenty of people out there. There are people out there living in slums. There are people out there living in small-scale farming communities. There are tribal people out there. There are there are wanderers. There are all kinds of ways to live. There are more ways of living than, than we could imagine, really. And we happen to, you know, those of us who are talking here and probably a lot of people who are listening, happen to be living in one way, which has turned out to be a huge dud. You know, it's given us lots of short-term stuff at the expense of a huge burst of destruction. And it's not sustainable in the literal sense of the word. And it's falling apart. And we're going to have to learn to live another way. And it's, it's not unprecedented. There are plenty of ways to live that are less damaging than this one. And none of them are perfect. And none of them should be romanticized. But we're going to have to learn from other ways of living. We're going to have to learn from our own past. We're going to have to learn from some of the new experiments that are going on now in small-scale living and appropriate technology and all the rest of it, some of which is quite exciting stuff, how to live in a different way. And it, I think it comes back to what I was saying just now about probably the best thing to do at this point is just to start doing that if you can or to do what parts of it you can and talk to other people who are doing it and just try and work out what is a more workable way to live. I mean, it's... It, it's my view, to be honest, that until peak oil and oil prices and climate change and those things really start to kick in in our lives personally, that none of this stuff will change radically. I think people will, for example, keep driving in cars to their homes in the suburbs until it becomes economically impossible to do that. And at that point, they'll change and start living, living differently because they'll have to. You know, people will keep shopping in giant supermarkets and malls on the edge of town until it becomes impossible to do that. And then they'll change. And at that point then we'll start getting a shift away from from this ridiculous way of living and that will you know that will start to happen in our lifetime in some places it's starting to happen already uh, those of us who want to do it earlier i think just have to get on with it and people can join in if they want to we'll just do the best you can really and speaking about moving back towards a way of living that we used to have uh, you teach scything lessons how did you get into that and how are we going to start moving into these kind of older technologies once again well, isn't it? it's an interesting it's an interesting example. Of this actually, I mean, I, I don't I don't do this because I'm trying to make some political point or something. I just do it because I like doing it, which is always the best reason to do anything. I had an, an allotment. I had a small piece of land a few years back, and it had a lot of grass growing on it. Uh, and I wondered if there was a way to cut all this grass without using fossil fuels or spending a lot of money on a lawnmower. And I heard about the use of scythes, which is the oldest way of cutting the grass known to man. These these things are thousands of years old. And they still use scythes in a lot of Eastern Europe, in many parts of the world, where there's a lot of grass. But we've stopped using them in Britain because they got replaced by tractors and lawnmowers and brush cutters and strimmers and all this kind of high-tech stuff over the last 50 or 60 years. But people have started importing European scythes now and teaching each other how to use them. And it started off with, with one guy down in the West Country, an environmentalist and a farmer who just started using these things himself and then started telling people about them and then started selling them because there was a lot of demand. And then he started running classes. And, and it's really interesting to watch this happen because over the last five to ten years, all sorts of people have started using scythes across Britain again. And quite a few of them, like me, have now started teaching other people how to use them. So I run classes in the summer every year, and I sell scythes, and I travel around the country teaching people how to use these things. And they're not a heritage tool. It's not something that you use just because it's a bit old-fashioned and quaint. They're really efficient. They're very good things to use. They're much lighter than a brush cutter. They don't use any fossil fuels. They get you fit. You can hear the bird song much easier to use, they're cheaper. And you know, a lot of people are starting to take an interest. So I'm starting to train people now, for example, who manage golf courses and who manage wildlife reserves and who, you know, who are cutting grass on their own land 
and local councils, local authorities are starting to get interested because they've discovered it's actually quite an efficient way to do things. And it's a really interesting example of a very quiet return of an old tool in a new form. These are very modern things, these, these European sites that we use. They're very, they're very nice to use. And it's coming back not because people are campaigning or because anyone's subsidizing it or anything. They're coming back because they really work and people enjoy using them. And, it's, and it makes economic sense to use them. I think we were just talking about, actually, where this stuff just starts to happen and starts to make sense just because people want to do it. Do you have an ergonomic Seymour aluminum scythe? Or do you have like one of the straight ones with the blade at the top? I have just did a Google search for them. I was looking at different sizes. The ones I'm using are called, they call them Austrian scythe. They're really sort of Central European scythe. And uh, yeah, they've got a long wooden handle, which is called a snaff, and a couple of side handles that go out. And then you can put all sorts of different blades on the end, different lengths of blade, different thicknesses of blade, depending on what you're cutting. You can cut everything from small trees to delicate meadow grass with them. And you can harvest cereal crops and all kinds of things, and you can mow your lawn. And, and they're, just, they're very pleasant to use, as well as being kind of efficient and low carbon and all that kind of stuff. Do you talk about the collapse of civilization as you're scything? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, the great thing about going out and scything a meadow full of grass is that it really, you know, after an hour of talking about this kind of thing, it really puts your head back in a good place again. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. As a writer, and you've written at a lot of different organizations, I'm wondering how young writers can start expressing ideas of the situation that our civilization is in, and if you have any advice for that. People want to go and have a look at my website, which is paulkingsnorth.net. I've got a whole page there of advice to writers. I mean, basically, it's very much easier than it's ever been to get your words out there. And if you've got something to say and you want to say it, then set up your website, start saying it, get get your words out in whatever way is best. And, And if you've got something to say and it works, and you really want to say it, then then people will start listening. And so do you think it's possible to start having these conversations on a regular basis with just regular people in your every, everyday life about the dire nature of the problem and actually start changing the conversations that all of us are having? Because I don't know if there's a way to just go up to someone on a regular basis and talk about these issues. I, I don't know if you have any insights there. Well, again, I think it's it's starting to happen already. People, I've seen all sorts of people talking about this stuff now in some way or another just because of the situation that the world's getting into. And the more it becomes impossible to deny what's happening, the more people will start talking about it. So I think it's very much easier now to talk about this in company, if you like, than it was 10 years ago. In 10 years' time, it, it may just seem obvious to everybody, but it's it's certainly a lot easier than it used to be. Is there reason to hope? Is there reason to have optimism about the future? Can we look forward to a future where our children will will be happy? Uh, well, who knows? I hope so. I've got children, so I do hope so. <laughs> I mean, it depends. What, you know, people always ask me about hope. They say, have you given up hope? And I say, hope in what? You know, hope for what? What are you hoping for? It depends. I don't hope that this way of life is going to continue because I don't think it will. I do hope that things won't get too difficult for me and people I love and for and for the world as a whole. But I mean, I think the, the way that I stay optimistic through all this stuff is just by focusing on the local and focusing on the real. You can talk about this stuff, for this big picture stuff, and it, it can be extremely depressing and very abstract. If you get out and start mowing your field or, I don't know, building a house or doing something practical in your community, then that's the kind of thing that makes me optimistic because people are very ingenious and we adapt very well to things. And when our backs are against the wall, we can do some good stuff together. So I think there's, it's not all doom and gloom, if you like. It's just a question of being honest about where, where we are and then just doing our best and trying to enjoy it as we do.
I'm lazy and I don't mean maybe rather rolling days with my little lady than slave away all damn day and all damn night for a maximum wage. No hurries, no worries. Let my hair grow curly. If it even ate worms, I wouldn't get up early. Race the rats, but just too fast. There's always a catch in the claws of a cat. Cause it's easier to sit on your ass, ditch the car and save a little cash. If you wanna travel first class and ride a bike that's built to last. No stress feels good to work less. You are listening to the Extra Environmentalist. Today, we're speaking with Michael McGonigal from Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Michael McGonigal, you are a political economist, environmental lawyer, professor at University of Victoria, and one of the co-founders of Greenpeace International. And today we're here to talk about your ideas on where the environmental movement has been and where it's going. Business as usual has been pushing forward and it's been trying to return the economies of Europe and the world to the usual form of economic growth that we've been seeing for the last few decades. So what hope do the activists of today have for changing the system that we live in and what kind of issues should they be focusing on? That's an interesting question on a whole bunch of levels. But one of the things that I dislike, quite honestly, is the word hope. And there's a very good discussion about that by Derek Jensen in his book, Endgame, where he talks about hope is a bad word. It's kind of a con job because, well, we can't really make any difference, but we can always hope. And his thing is, and I agree with this, there is no hope. The machine is cranking on, but who cares? So we just do what we can do. And we can enjoy doing what we can do. We can celebrate life in the process. So I would say that for the activists of today, the hope of turning this machine around is essentially non-existent and will require serious shocks to that system for changes to take place. But I don't think that really matters. I mean, it's frustrating, of course. We just have to do what has to be done and understand what has to be done. And another problem with the word hope is that so much of what people do is tailored to being realistic to being acceptable, not to step out of line, not to use terms like capitalism or growth. God forbid to use terms like that in a critical way because, oh, you get discredited. So from that, the number one things activists, I think, have to do is to understand really well and work really hard to understand the dynamics of the systems that we have on this planet and to bring those out into the public consciousness and to talk about them, and to put forward ideas which really go to the core of the crisis of capital, the crisis of the state, and state regulation that we all need to start looking at. Because there's huge possibilities. I mean, in terms of changing the system, if we decided to, oh my gosh, there's millions of things we could do. But we can't do that because we don't understand it, we don't see it, we kind of naturalize it. So the number one thing I would say that environmentalists need to do is to denaturalize capitalism, denaturalize the state system, the regulatory system, the way we think, and say these are constructed, and take them apart, and actually renaturalize. Say then what are the things that we need to start with? What are the fundamentals we need to get back to? You started off with a really bold statement that you don't feel that hope is something that people should be relying on. Can you take us back to uh, when you started becoming an activist, maybe in the 60s and 70s? What was it like back then and what has changed from then to now? 
Well, David Suzuki, Canada's famous environmentalist, a couple of weeks ago was quoted in the paper as having said that environmentalism has basically been wasting its time for the last 20 years because we shouldn't have been talking about environmental stuff. We should have been talking about growth. And I agree with that. Back in the in the 1960s and 1970s, I was stupid back in those days. I thought I knew something, but really I was just obsessed about killing whales and how terrible it was, and we had to stop that. And I was not really that aware of the dynamics of capital and so on, which is what drives the whole process. So in those days, it was really very issue-specific. In my part of the world, in BC, where I was in Vancouver, it was, you know, the Greenpeace issues. Their big concern was BC Hydro because it was building all these dams. No one was even concerned in the least about forestry, which then became, of course, the big issue in Canada. It was naively optimistic, and it was a, it was a simpler time, in, in fact. I don't think even the industrialized power structures were aware that we couldn't have both our economic growth machine and environmental quality. I mean, the whole movement of environmentalism in the States in the 60s, Nixon was behind a lot of the great legislation that went through in the late 60s and 70s in the United States. And they thought we could have it all. We could have clean water and clean air and healthy forests. And all we need to do is better regulation, more efficiency and so on. So it was kind of a naive time. And I was certainly a part of that. I just thought we can stop it. I mean, and, and we were successfully in Greenpeace. And that's what I was doing in the 70s and 80s. It was fighting the whaling industry. And we, we won, quote unquote. We got a global moratorium back in 1982. 30 years later, there's still whaling and there's still way worse pressure on the oceans. So we were fighting specific issues and thinking we were winning, but we weren't. So what you're saying is that environmentalists traditionally have not questioned the economic rationale of the day, and that's what's really changing? I wouldn't say it's changing. I don't think environmentalists are still challenging the question of the economic rationale. We can come back to that. If you look at, say, the left, the movements, uh, the, the arguments of the left in the 1950s and 60s, it was had no environmental component to it whatsoever. Environmentalism was seen as bourgeois, middle class, nimbyism, right? We like uh, to have a nice clean environment where we live and and we'll just, you know, regulate or push it somewhere else. And so they, they had no, the left had no recognition of the importance of nature, particularly for the economic system. Similarly, environmentalists had no real appreciation for the critical understanding and of the of the economic dynamics that were driving environmental problems so neither side was really engaging with the other and to a degree i think that's still pretty true i mean the left has been more sensitive to environmental issues than in the past but they're still seen as environmental issues they're not really understood as deeply on the left as they should be that's why i talk about exit environmentalism i think environmentalists still don't understand that they don't ever look at where wealth comes from so maybe you could go a little bit more into the concept of exit environmentalism the concept is two things. We got to leave behind the past. We got to exit the old environmentalism. We got to leave that behind, which is what I call liberal environmentalism. And we've got to move into a new environmentalism, which takes us out of that system, which exits that system. We exit the old environmentalism and the new environmentalism helps us exit the liberal system. And just to give a very simple explanation of it, I teach in the law school at the University of Victoria. And I've taught environmental law. I've done environmental activism and forest policy and forest regulation, international environmental law, et cetera, for decades. But the reality is all of those laws, all of these regulations require the state. 
And basically, you can put environmentalism and environmental law in the same category because almost every environmental battle really requires, wants new legislation or to take government subsidies or whatever. So it all requires action by the state. But the biggest developer around is the state. It's not Exxon. It's not Bechtel or Toyota or General Motors. It's the state. In Canada, it's the state that's driving oil production out of the tar sands in Alberta and subsidizing it. It's the state that licenses all these large timber tenures and subsidizes fisheries everywhere and builds highways and and bails out car companies. It's the state, the state, the state. So what we can achieve through environmentalism and through environmental law is minimal because the state depends upon development. It depends upon environmental development. So the left has long criticized capitalism, which should be done, but we got to go beyond that. It's not just capitalism, it's the state itself, which is very dependent on capitalism and dependent upon economic growth and therefore sees its own physical base as being resources to be developed. So exit environmentalism means coming to terms with that, understanding that, and understanding that, oh, we can make incremental things and we got to be realistic, but we're never going to get very far. We're going to be slipping further and further behind, even with our little victories, unless we address the real fundamental dynamics of environmental erosion. I teach a class and have this kind of approach to law I call green legal theory, which addresses that beyond environmental law. It's a big, big challenge. And it's a big challenge intellectually to see beyond the kind of naturalized world we take for granted that these are just the systems we have. It's a big challenge there. It's a big challenge historically in terms of the roots of these problems. And they're not 20 or 50 years old. They go way back. And we're talking really the West and the compulsions of the West. And you can go back to the ancient Greeks if you want, the very fundamental problems. The solutions aren't ones you can just kind of figure out pretty easily because they are so deeply rooted. And that's a problem. That's why I think it's a problem of discourse and debate. As, as I say to people, you know, we're running around actively, urgently trying to save things and take action. And that's not what we need to do. We need actually to stop. We need to slow down. We need to look at where the problems are coming from and how we understand those. So uh, the metaphor I've been using recently is it's like going to England and going running across the road. And before you cross the road, you look to the left, as we do here, and we run out onto the road and we get run over because cars in England come from the right. So we have to realize that actually we've got to re-educate how we think and not just look to the right when you cross the street, but get it so ingrained in our body that we automatically look to the right, and then we can survive. We have to do that same sort of thing here. We have to understand that the environmental problems are not specific environmental problems that can be solved by regulation and focusing just on specific problems. We have to re-educate ourselves to think about what's behind those problems and automatically see those dynamics behind the problems and address those, not the problems themselves. The theme of exit environmentalism is what I call denaturalization and renaturalization. The narrative of that is we have to denaturalize these systems that we take for granted as just eternally true, whether it's capitalism and the competitive market or the state or liberal rationalism or science. We have to denaturalize all that stuff. And we have to renaturalize a kind of synthetic relationship to our being. And that, I think, is one of the key challenges 
that we avoid because of the abstraction of our existence, the technological, the texting, the social media existence, is we don't have a reciprocal relationship with the natural world. As individuals, we're so involved in our governments, we're so involved in these systems and these large-scale institutions that have been passed down to us from generation to generation. You mentioned the Romans. That's a very, very long time ago. And that kind of mentality has been with humanity for generations and generations. How is it that humans can step past these ingrained ways of thinking, these cultural identities, identifying with one country or one race? How do we see past these large-scale problems that are just so fundamentally a part of what it is to be human right now? Is there a way that we can do that without destroying the whole entire culture? Is there a way to pick up the pieces from what we have now and construct something that's constructive and will be able to be sustainable in the future? I don't know. And you asked me first if there's hope. And given the depth of the problems, I would say the answer is no, that there isn't hope. That the only way that these changes ultimately will be resolved is through responding to a lot of catastrophic changes. And these are not ones I'm making up. Climate change is one of the most obvious, but biodiversity loss is another one. Huge impacts. And again, this goes with some of the economic problems we're seeing today and the chaos that's happening there. It's a daunting thing. And as a result, people will say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. That's just so depressing. Uh, I want to be an optimist. So let's not talk about it. And that itself is a problem because we don't want to confront these things because they, they make people depressed. But actually, I don't think we need to think about it that way. Because there are so many different ways of living that can move us there. So, for example, one of the long historical problems that underpins the environmental crisis is the enclosure movement, where beginning, say, in England in the 1300s, but then really taking off later on, those communal, feudal-based structures that protected local communities who then could manage their own commons, their own fields collectively through their own rules, not through the the crown or the king or the central government, but themselves, those people were kicked off the land. They were enclosed. Their lands were enclosed and turned into private ownership so that, that they could be exploited as commodities for trade internationally and for industrialization and so on. That's a huge, long process. That process is also called colonialism, imperialism, where native people were, again, enclosed, pushed off their land, stuck on reservations so that the state could get access to those lands. That's a process that's gone on for hundreds of years, several hundreds hundreds of years. Well, local activism is anti-enclosure. One of the things that we can be doing right now is understanding the nature of enclosure. And, and the Occupy movement is a very good counterexample to enclosure, saying the space, we have to look at the spaces of capital. We have to look at how things are played out and to reclaim those spaces. Very difficult to do. These spaces are now being colonized by iPhones, where people are walking down the street and don't even realize that they live in a space because they're all clicking away on their iPhones. The momentum of the colonization of space continues. But the resistance to that is also very direct whether it's the Occupy movement or native rights, indigenous people throughout the world, the World Social Forum, or these are being put forward, or all kinds of you know, movements to reclaim the commons or counter alternative currencies and so on. But these things have to be understood not as nice things that are done on their own, but as important because they're going at the fundamental roots of the dynamics of central power. And they're significant in that way. They're going to not easily be achieved. You see, for example, the history of Indigenous rights in Canada, continuous co-option. So it's that sort of understanding translating into very specific actions 
including in my own town, for example, in Victoria, there's an area called Fernwood, where a lot of university students live in kind of a neat neighborhood. And they're actually trying to take that old neighborhood and turn it into one big farm where different people are growing different stuff in their backyards and creating a herbal apothecary where they distribute herbal medicines and so on. It's that type of reclamation, which has deep roots And you can take action and love doing it because it's such a neat thing to be doing, working in your own community, doing that. But also knowing you're doing it in response to hundreds and hundreds of years of colonialism, which have to be countered if we're going to survive. Starting with reclaiming space seems like a tangible step, something that I can do. But I see some barriers to that. One Definitely the elites in the way that they have lashed out against the Occupy movement, just simply people getting together and talking, has seen tremendous crackdowns, not just in North America, but around the world. And then also other people who might minimize it and say, oh, you know, there's so many big problems in the world and you're just going out and gardening in your community and gardening with other people. How is that really going to address the bigger problems? What would you say to both of those issues? Both of those issues, I would say the answer is the same. We have to talk about it. We have to understand what the problems are. And maybe I'm sounding too much like an academic, but I'm also I'm an activist. And I see it in both ways, in both places. There's a, a desperate need for deeper understandings about the dynamics of the systems that are driving us. And there's a blockage to people wanting to talk about that. The Occupy movement, I think, was a brilliant set of uh, strategies last year and in the, into the spring because it so disrupted the consciousness of the elites and at the same time got a lot of public support from people and disrupted the consciousness because it did things that didn't fit. And it didn't fit because, and it's so sophisticated. I mean, for example, well, just tell us what you want was one of the responses. Tell us your demands. And the response is, we're not, we don't have any demands. We're not, we don't want to put forward demands. And that's just, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, of course it makes sense if you think that the problem is who the demands would be made to. It would be made to the political power structure. Well, the political power structure is itself the problem. There's been a lot of discussion in the last 20 years about rights, the the weakness of rights, environmental rights, or uh, women's rights, because rights themselves are granted by the systems that themselves are problematic. So the Occupy movement, by refusing to make demands, kind of disoriented the system, people's understandings, in a very sophisticated and powerful way. Capitalism was talked about a lot in the Occupy movement. The nature of inequity, the profound inequities were talked about in ways that that haven't been done before. I think there is a possibility of opening up this dialogue, a broader dialogue with elites, but it can't be one that people shrink back from. People have to be very clear of what's going on, for example, in Montreal right now with these demonstrations against tuition fee increases in, in Quebec. And people don't realize why students are so entrenched about that, because it's a social democratic tradition that's being challenged by making university less and less accessible to people in comparison with, say, Scandinavian countries where tuition is often free because they want it to be accessible to everybody. These battles are not going to be won easily. They're going to have to be won through a lot of clarity, a lot of strength uh, against co-opting forces, but particularly through dialogue through putting forward over and over again very strong explanations and clear explanations as to the dynamics that we take for granted and why they're not working anymore. As one of the co-founders of Greenpeace, you have an interesting perspective on the Occupy movement. You mentioned that they don't really have a lot of demands. 
Is this the next sort of step in uh, organizational dynamic is not really having a demand to say, we, we want to stop this pipeline or we want to stop killing these whales. It's just to kind of take yourself out of the system and express dissatisfaction with the whole system in general. Is this the next step in what people need to be doing? I don't think there's any one strategy. I think that, I mean, blocking pipelines to the West Coast to prevent the delivery of oil from the tar sands to China is absolutely imperative. I think it's a really good thing to be doing. But the argument that has to be made there is not just we don't want oil tankers on the coast because those oil tankers are going to eventually have an accident and cause damage. Sure, spent years fighting oil tankers, part of my work for like 10 years. So I totally relate to that and I know the damage they can do. You can make those arguments, but the deeper arguments, the deeper arguments need to be made, such as that we should be leaving this stuff in the ground. To the extent that we're continuing to dig up and look for more sources of fuel of any type, whether it's wind energy or tidal power or biofuels or tar sands, we're just extending the system. What we need to do is to run out of energy. We need to slow down our demands. We need to reduce our demands. One of the absolute most important criteria for an exit environmentalism is, is what's called demand reduction. Not new supplies, reducing demand. Capitalism can't handle that. So we ought to not just talk about oil causing environmental problems, but that we need to reduce the use of oil, we need to reduce the use of fossil fuels, we need to reduce energy, period, because they all have unacceptable costs. Well, when we do that, we confront the reality that we need more energy if we're going to grow, because capital needs to grow. Well, then we've got to talk about the growth dynamic of capitalism. And then we've got to talk about, well, the state is addicted to that. So the problem with blocking the Enbridge pipeline is one about needing to have a different form of economics, a post-capitalist economics, and a different form of government, unlike the state, which is completely addicted to economic growth. And unless we do that, that pipeline's going to happen because the growth system needs it. So what's the alternative to that? Well, for example, what about indigenous people all along the pipeline having a veto? We need a new constitutional arrangement where local communities can veto assaults on their landscape and can say, no, we don't want that. So that's the discourse that needs to change, not necessarily the actions. And actions like the Occupy movement were great because they went to the heart of financial capital. They went to Wall Street. They started in Wall Street and they refused to move and they wanted to talk. They didn't want demands. They wanted to talk about the problems. And that's what's needed. So yes, it's a new form of environmentalism, but it's a new form of environmentalism that's tied to old forms of environmentalism, but transform it, pull us out of a liberal environmentalism that thinks, oh, if we just have better environmental assessment processes, we have good decision making. No, ain't going to work. So it's about saying we want to leave that oil in the ground because we want our economic system to either fail or develop a new economic system that's better? Uh, we want to leave that oil in the ground. Because pumping out more oil from the ground is just going to exacerbate climate change because it will just increase supply when the economic problems we have is a supply-driven economy. And we need to be able to develop new forms of economy which do not require that sort of supply. I'll give you a very specific example. Why don't we get rid of the automobile? Let's just get rid of the automobile. If we got rid of the automobile, or at least 
for 99% of its uses, we would have different forms of transportation, bicycles, for example. We would have different patterns of urban development, urban organizations. We'd have more public transit. We'd have more equity. People would not have to spend, as they do today, $10,000 per year to maintain an automobile. $10,000 per year, which sounds ridiculous, but you put the price of a car in, say a car costs 20,000 bucks, you have it for 10 years, there's 2,000 bucks, but people buy them on credit, so now you gotta pay your interest payments, you gotta pay gasoline, you gotta pay maintenance, you gotta pay insurance, you gotta pay parking. People spend on average $10,000 a year for cars. Okay, so we want, don't want oil, because oil is gonna drive climate change. So we're gonna reduce our use of energy. We reduce our use of energy, we need to come up with other forms of transportation. So well, let's get rid of the automobile. Well, we get rid of the automobile, we got better cities. People don't waste money on these cars that are just propping up an old system. We have a healthier population because people get around by bicycle. We have whole different infrastructure for people who use bikes and so on and so forth. We begin the change. We begin the change we need to make. It's not such a big deal. The problem is, why do we need cars? Well, look at China. The last 10 years, China's gone from being a bicycle-based society to being the biggest purchaser of automobiles in the world. 1.4 billion people all want cars. If that isn't stupid, I don't know what is. Why are they doing that? Because they've bought into the Western model of development. Big capital investments needed. How is China going to get capital investments? The only way China's going to get capital investment in from, from the West is playing the West game. So rather than leapfrogging past the Western industrial capitalist system, it's bought into it. And it's going to cause massive problems, as we all know, with coal and so on. And it's not meeting the needs of its own people. I have a Chinese graduate student here who says that every five minutes in China, a new violent protest erupts. Every five minutes. It's not meeting the needs of its people. It's not meeting economic needs. It's crazy. We need to talk about that. People can see it. They feel it in their gut. But we need to justify our actions and explain our actions in light of those types of systemic understandings. We don't do that. We just say we don't want a pipeline because it's going to break up and cause damage on the coast of B.C. The Western model of development has been so pervasive across the world and so many countries have bought into it. And yet you look at Spain right now, new unemployment numbers just were released and it's at 24.4% unemployment nationwide. And for the West, we've only ever known this Western model of development, especially in North America. Everybody who emigrated over here has always followed this model of development, and that's what we're used to. And so we're expecting that to just keep going on and on. So how do you start developing that next model of development or de-development, if you wanted to call it something like that? Does it look like some of the values that are and ideas that are coming out of the degrowth movement or ecological economics, or is it something else? Well, ecological economics, unfortunately, has been taken over by the neoclassicists, so ecological economics is basically lost from my analysis of it. Uh, the degrowth movement is very good, and I think I'm actually going to go to the degrowth conference in Montreal, and thankfully we'll be able to take Via Rail to get there. They still haven't shut that down yet. It's things like the degrowth movement, it's things like the kind of understanding, some of the understandings of ecological economics. It's all of those things. I think the basic recognition of the Western model of development, which environmentalists do not confront, is that the growth of the Western economy forever, but let's go from the middle of the 18th century, say 1750 on, when industrial capitalism really started to take off, the growth of the economy has been always based upon the growth in the consumption of energy. 
it's a parallel thing. If you plot the growth of GDP on a graph, and then you plot the growth of energy consumption, fossil fuel consumption on a graph, or not just fossil fuel, but essentially fossil fuel, coal, and then oil, but then also nuclear and big hydroelectric. You plot it, they just lay right on top of each other. In fact, it's a bit more energy use on the graph than economic growth. And we can't do that anymore. We can't continue to do nuclear, as we've seen what the problems with that are, and we certainly can't do coal and oil. Renewable energies simply do not work to replace those. And we, you know, all these other things just put the costs up, whether it's carbon sequestration or whatever. So we've got a problem. We either burn the planet or we change our economy, which requires burning the planet in order to keep the economy going. You know, I love the famous line by the American, actually, he's from your neck of the woods there back on the East Coast of the United States. I think he's at Duke, uh, Frederick Jameson, the great cultural theorist of our day, who coined the line that uh, we can more easily imagine the end of the planet than we can imagine the end of capitalism. And that's absolutely true. We don't mind the end of the planet because we can survive for another 10 years or 20 years. And that's the choice that we're confronted with. And energy and commodity use is absolutely foundational to the growth of the economy. We got to make a decision here. tonight the impact on one crop and how we'll all pay for the enormous damage being done to cornfields across this country. This is how Americans will pay the price for the worst drought in half a century. We begin our coverage tonight in Waterloo, Iowa. This is about as dry as it gets. The farmer who planted this crop says he can only expect to get about 30 percent of the corn from this field than he did last year. The worst drought in half a century is taking its toll. Now the nation's midsection is reeling, with 94% of Kentucky's corn crop in trouble, mirrored in Missouri, Indiana, Illinois, and Kansas. And a reduced crop or no crop ripples throughout the economy. We're going to have to ration corn usage for feed, ethanol, uh, livestock usage and everything. Already the price of corn has shot up on the Chicago futures market. It is probably the one most important thing to just like life on the planet next to water. And the price of corn affects almost everything. We use corn as a feed for livestock, as a, as a feed for poultry. So when the price of corn goes up, that pushes up the price of just about everything that we buy at the supermarket. And lots of other corn products we buy, too, from crayons to car tires to shampoo and makeup. The consumer will pay the price. At this particular time, with a weak economy, a weak job markets, and weak wage gains, any increase in prices is something that's going to hurt more than it normally would. 3,165 record high temperatures in the month of June. This are the warmest temperatures ever in cities. Folks, this has never happened before. Nashville, Tennessee, 109 degrees. Atlanta, Georgia, 106. Look at Raleigh at 105. We were on pace with the temperatures that were in Saudi Arabia and deserts all over 
over the country with some of the hottest temperatures in the world. Now, with that heat came an awful lot of storms. About a thousand storms kicked off in Friday. This morning, at least three million homes are without power across seven states. At least 14 confirmed dead, all after this powerful line of storms blew through from the Midwest to the Mid-Atlantic Friday. Oh, oh my God. The storms did the usual, but did it big, taking down power lines, uprooting trees, and forcing a weekend of cleanup, with temps climbing as high as 106 degrees in Atlanta, breaking the all-time record high. It's aggravating, it's frustrating, and the best thing is we're trying to do keep everybody cool, and we just stick together. That epic wildfire in Colorado and the massive exodus underway right now. At this moment, you can see right here, families scrambling to safety. Cars are bumper to bumper. More than 32,000 evacuated so far. In a fire moving so fast, it doubled in size overnight. In a matter of hours, these Colorado suburbs became a raging inferno. Dozens of homes consumed by flames. Hundreds of families tonight desperate for answers. Mindy Levinson, like thousands of others, got a text message from authorities saying she had minutes to evacuate. Through the choking smoke, she grabbed her son, dog, and ran out. It hurts a lot. I mean, just to think of going back to my house and finding it in ruins and charred. I grew up in central Illinois in a house without air conditioning. What is so unusual about this? Now, come the winter, there will be a cold snap and lots of snow and we the same guys like EJ will start lecturing us there's a difference between the weather and the climate I agree with that we're having some hot weather get over it you are listening to the extra environmentalist and today we're speaking with Michael McGonigal about exit environmentalism I just wanted to reiterate a question that Justin asked you before. Why is this Western model, this capitalistic model, so pervasive around the world? Why is it so attractive to so many different people? Because it's massively subsidized. So we're getting a free lunch. So a lot of the stuff that we're getting is free. That's one thing. Because it's been so successful, every community, almost every community that gets colonized by capital fights back. Whether it's indigenous communities throughout the world over the last several centuries, whether it's the communities in England and Europe which fought the enclosure movement, they fought back. And they didn't want to be capitalized. They didn't want to be industrialized. They liked the world the way they have it. Well, they didn't have the power. Capital generates a huge amount of capital and a huge amount of power based upon that capital. So it's not that people choose to this mode of existence. They don't have a choice because if they resist, they get overwhelmed. And if they fight back, they get overwhelmed. And there's not alternatives. So, for example, you want to have a good bicycle transportation system in New York City. Well, the amount of obstacles to that, of serious change, are huge. Cultural changes, the way you dress or even being able to put your bike somewhere. I mean, simple little things. Or you don't want to buy a car? Well, try to live without a car. And you want to see the car market shrink? Well, you got to stop advertising. There was a very interesting phenomenon in Canada a couple of years ago where on the CBC, the national television network, 
and the National Radio Network, they were trying to get everyone to go out and get flu shots, flu vaccines, because they were afraid of, of uh, some big flu pandemic happening. And so they showed these lineups of all people lining up to get the flu vaccines and so on. And then if they would go a couple of days or a, or a few days without showing these lineups, they disappeared. People stopped going to get their flu vaccine. And so they started saying, well, we've we got to keep doing this because people got to see how important it is to get your flu vaccine. And if they don't show these, these news stories, people stop doing it. Well, do you know how many car ads there are out there? People don't want to buy cars. They buy cars because they're advertised to death to buy cars. They're made to love cars. There's an article I saw recently. Why is it that people so love their car? Well, because they're told over and over and over and over again they love their car. And yet, if we got rid of cars, people could not have to make $10,000 net a year, and they could have two months of holidays every year and not have a car. So I don't think it's choice. It's historical power. It's contemporary power. It's advertising. It's lack of alternatives. It's a cultural phenomenon that's of a culture that's been ripped away from the land. We are so disconnected from our place, it's not even funny. So it's all those phenomena. I think that it's really hard for people right now to just have the mental patience to sit down and to talk about these issues because, you know, everyone's so busy going shopping, going to work, you know, and then they get home and they have to watch the television that the average American watches and they're brainwashed in a lot of different ways and they don't even really have time to think about these issues. They don't even crop up anywhere in their lives. So when you try to present a topic such as, you know, exit environmentalism to somebody, they're just automatically shut off and, and well I, just, I think I don't out. think I don't think that's true. I think that may be true in the United States, but fifty percent of youth under twenty five in Spain have lots of time on their hands. <laughs> that's because very they're true. All unemployed. Lots of people in Greece have time on their hands. Lots of people in Montreal who are fighting the Charest government are being radicalized by immediacy. Right. So I think the part of the problem, again, one of the reasons that we need to keep this economic machine going is keeping people busy buying and texting is because when they slow down and start to think about it, they go, what is all this crap about anyway? Right. So just take that as an example. You say people are too busy. Right. Well, go back to Marx. I mean, Marx, the conquest of space through time was one of his brilliant insights. Before Captain Cook arrived, the space between London, England and Hawaii was infinite. There was no connection between Hawaii and London. But thanks to 200 years of technological development, the space between Hawaii and England is a microsecond, the push of a button in internet. So the, the whole speeding up of our society is itself a capitalist phenomenon. I mean, I did not start out in any way, shape or form as a kind of left Marxist capitalist. I'm really an empiricist. I've just been involved in environmental battles. I work in a resource management school, always frustrated by why can't we get success here? Why is the government such a seller? Why does the government work for forest companies and not work for the greater good? And so I've been lucky in the last 10 years at UVic to be able to read a lot more and, and look at this. And empirically, the problems are evident where they come from. So the speediness of our culture, it's all related to the turnover time of capital. The quicker you can make exchanges, the quicker you can make snap moves, the more you can get return to capital. Everything is being driven right now by looking for places to get returns to capital. And that's what the whole European movement is about. And so we've got loans, these you know massive hundreds of percentages uh, of debt 
that, that countries are bearing, and we're talking about hundreds of percent, it's not just the, the 80% that they talk about, but you add consumer debt on top of that, you add corporate debt on top of that, and so on. We're talking mega debt. Why? Because we need to fuel this continuous turnover. We need to lend people money so they can buy more goods and so on. The speed is a very big element of this. Right now, graduation just happened at University of British Columbia, or it's coming up very soon, and a lot of students are finishing up, and they're looking at the job market, and the picture is very bleak, and the same situation is occurring in the United States, and it's been like this for quite a few years now in countries across Europe. And so, as you were saying a moment ago, whereas Seth is seeing, and I'm seeing a lot of people who are busy and moving around and shopping, there's also a growing number of the population that are just being dumped into the bottom of whatever capitalism has to offer them right now, and they have more time on their hands to start thinking about different alternatives. And what would your advice be to those people in starting to think about these issues? Well, first of all, to give advice like this is in a way, kind of hypocritical for me. Until I was in my late 30s, I was just an environmental activist making no money and particularly working to protect this one wilderness area north of Vancouver, the Stein Valley, which was I did for years and years, made no money. And then I got offered this teaching job and I ended up teaching and I've been doing that for 20 years. And I now live a very nice, comfortable existence. It's kind of weird. I feel it's kind of weird uh, because I'm part of the problem. I'm not 1%, but I'm certainly part of the problem. So for me to tell students to drop out and do something else, I feel kind of hypocritical about it. But that's what needs to happen. We all need to do that. And I teach in a law school where students are coming in and looking for law jobs. What happens is one's own vulnerability increases. I know I can live on a lot less than I live on, right? A lot less. And so can many other people. But you get pulled into the system and you become part of it, that's just what happens to you. We don't need to do that. I have students, and in Victoria it's particularly strong, who just want to farm. They just want to farm. I wanted me, I said, well, I'll see you around. She said, no, you won't. I'm off to farm, and I ain't going to be back in the city for a long time. And given the direction, you know, transition towns and all that, given the direction in which the society is going, I think the number one thing that people need to do is come up with ways of living that avoid the capital trap, whether it's living in cooperatives and growing one's own food and keeping one's, one's needs lower. That's where the real future lies and where people, I think, will be much more satisfied because you don't need all this stuff. So I, I don't like to, because I'm now kind of part of the problem in a way because I'm a university professor and my wife's a university professor, lives in that world. I don't want to tell people forsake that but they should. What does exit environmentalism look like in practice? Is there any hope for the green parties or any kind of green capitalism, or do we just withdraw from government entirely? Uh, what do you think exit environmentalism actually starts taking shape as? There's all kinds of strategies. I think, yes, there's hope for the green party, but I, in fact, in my talk I gave last fall, which came up with this term exit environmentalism, I did talk about the green party. And the way the Green Party is structured in Canada today is, in my opinion, completely wrong. Completely wrong. Which is to say we have one member, who's my MP, around whom the entire party is oriented. to get this one person in the House of Commons in Canada. Whereas what I think the Green Party should do would be to say, we are our own parliament. If you're the Green Party representative for a riding, you're now the member of parliament. So we're going to have a parallel parliament. 
the Green Party is going to meet twice a year for a week, every six months. And if you're a Green Party member, your job in your community is to raise enough money for you to work as the Green Party representative and to make changes happening in your community right now. Not to put all this energy to raise money, to do campaigns, to run for the parliament, where you're going to get into a system that's not going to do a damn thing for you anyway because you're going to be a minority. You're going to have no control over anything. And if you do, you're going to be a party system that's going to be controlled from the top, et cetera, et cetera. Forget all that. Let's run a parallel parliament. Now, sure, run for the federal parliament if you want, but don't put any energy into it. And you know what my prediction would be if that happened? The popular vote, the percentage of the popular vote for the Green Party would go way up from what it is now because people would actually be doing stuff and not just being a member of the Green Party and running for the Green Party. And then if you got Green Party members in, in the Parliament or in the, the Senate or Congress or wherever, their job would not be to pass legislation in Ottawa, but would be to take whatever's going on in the center and facilitate those people doing it on the ground to turn it completely over. So to make the Green Party a public movement for taking government back to the people and pulling it out of the centralized system. Yeah. So in the United States, President Obama was elected on this large campaign of hope and change and all these promises that he was going to make to make these huge changes in the government. And now he's running again with the same sort of slogans like we're going to change the way government goes. And nobody really makes the connection that every single government system is pretty much the same as the last one. They say the worst president is the current one in office because he keeps all the power of the last presidents. So you're saying to start a parallel kind of government next to the government that's already in power to try to move the power structure to that government? Isn't that just kind of moving the deck chairs around? And no, the, on, no, 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 no. On the Not Titanic there? What I'm saying, we need to radically democratize the state. And we need to democratize the state, not by making it more democratic in terms of better voter turnout for elections, but by decentralizing power to the local level. What I would see as a kind of a networked constitutionalism. What's needed is really to take anarchistic philosophy much more seriously. And you look at someone like Murray Bookchin, right, the uh, great uh, social ecologist who was an anarchist. And his argument was, and this is what happened in the enclosure movement, this is what happened with Native people, this is what happened in the municipalities. What happens when you enclose local communities is you take their self-regulatory capabilities away and turn them over to an elite, whether they're lawyers or legislators or bureaucrats or corporate leaders or whatever. You take self-regulatory power away. The anarchist philosophy has been anti-state because of that. We should be regulating ourselves. We should be mutual aid. We should be looking after each other at the local level. What I'm saying about the Green Party is you want a networked localism. For example, there's a, a lovely line about Switzerland. Ask anybody who the president of Switzerland is, and they won't have a clue. Because in the Constitution of Switzerland, the president can only be president for one year. Switzerland is a confederal state more than anyone around, which is to say the federal part, the central authority, is very weak. And much of it is maintained, power is maintained in the cantons. But a networked localism is what's needed. There's some actual 
overlay here with the Tea Party, believe it or not, but only marginally. Governments are problems. Central governments are big problems. And so to me, what's needed is a much more anarchistic, networked constitutionalism where the economy is locally based, the decision-making is locally based, rule-making is locally based. It's much more of a horizontal system, a confederal system, not a federal system or not a, a unified nation state. Like bioregionalists, right? 10,000 bioregions on the planet rather than 180 governments. So that's what I'm talking about. That's where the Green Party should be going. So you wrote a book called Planet U, and we brought you to University of British Columbia a while ago to speak on some of the ideas from that book and how it's moved on. Do you see a way for universities to either aid in this process or ways to remove any hindrances that they might be providing to this process now? Unfortunately, Again, it's another one of these hopeless situations where the potential for universities is huge. But universities, the administration is so totally hooked into the big money, big research platforms, as they call them, very centralist, very resource intensive. Universities, again, this is the back of the 60s, universities need to be radically democratized. And they're very resistant to that. And they're going in the other direction, certainly in Canada. They're going much more in the other direction where, you know, they're much more interested in patents from their computer science departments. And you don't see Marxists and economics departments at all anymore. It's very bureaucratized. And, and now that they're, they're having to raise their own money, they're staffed with all kinds of development officers. So they're looking at PR machines and so on. Unfortunately, universities and universities have huge potential that's what planet u is about but i I haven't seen that being picked up i mean for example the ashi the uh, association for the advancement of sustainability in higher education they have a, a newsletter they put up once a month i think and i get that if you look at that website they never talk about governance they never talk about university governance it's all about new green buildings you know and these marginal transportation improvements The type of radical change that universities need will not come about without a lot more disruption to their funds and their ability to just keep on going. What do you think that 100 years from now, people looking back at this time right now in Earth's history, in civilization's history, what do you think they're going to say about this time right now that we're living through? I guess you'd see, you know, the the usual line that we're selfish and just short term and self-interested and not caring about the future of the planet, the future of our children and so on. But I think even more than that, just how blind we are, how stupid we are in that we think we're this sophisticated, rational society producing all these great high tech things and flying around the planet and so on, when really we haven't a clue what we're doing. We're just patching things up. And the amount of critical thought and dialogue is virtually non-existent. We're like robots. And I think 100 years from now, people look back on us. Just the way we look back on how could we the Industrial Revolution have been allowed to happen where we had 12-year-old kids in coal mines so some fat cat could you know, reap benefits by ripping off the labor? How disgusting could we have been to be massacring Indians because they were seen to be subhuman in order to you know, colonize territories and take gold from Mexico to Spain? It'll be that kind of shock and surprise at just how we think we're so sophisticated, but we're actually very unsophisticated and just blindly following powers that we don't understand. Maybe people will be mad at us, which they should be, but I don't know. 
Do you have any thoughts on ways that we could go about creating a new social narrative that helps to move us in the right direction? I think the narrative is an old social narrative that needs to be brought back and reformed a bit. And it is an ecological left social narrative that capitalism and the state and the wealth that we have has always been based upon the consumption of natural resources in the last 200 years at exponential rates of increase, that we're hitting the wall on that, that it's not going to allow the economies that we have now to succeed. It's definitely going to collapse. What was needed is an urgent, even for our own sort of economic self-interest, what's urgently needed is to rebuild the economies now in ways that are radically more equitable, radically less resource-intensive, slower, calmer, culturally sensitive, celebratory, not just materialist and mechanistic. That's the narrative that we need, a narrative of how silly we've been, how blind we've been, and how we've wasted the potential that we have. And we've got to start doing that right now. And yes, it's difficult because we're so dependent. And those weaning us off those dependencies, whether it's auto workers in Oshawa and Detroit or university professors that get paid too much. So we need to simplify, equalize and slow down. And there's lots of possibilities for doing that. But we don't have the governance systems that allow us to explore those. So it's not every episode of The Extra Environmentalist that we are so fortunate to talk to two extremely well-versed and articulate people on the issues facing industrial civilization and the issues of environmentalism today. But that is today's episode. And because we had those two extended interviews, we don't want to take up too much time discussing our thoughts on environmentalism. But I did want to bring up just a few points. One of them was in discussing climate change with Paul Kingsnorth. We haven't really discussed climate change extensively on previous episodes of The Extra Environmentalist simply because, as Paul Kingsnorth brought out, it's not something that we can really do anything about. Our industrial civilization is humming along and spewing out wastes into the atmosphere, and any basic research into science can clearly show you how the dynamic of greenhouse gases are creating higher global temperature averages And what's really up for speculation and up for debate is how that plays out in different places in terms of weather. But I don't really feel that climate change is anything that we can really tackle as a civilization or as individual people. And so it hasn't really been the focus of a lot of our discussions. I I don't know about you, Seth, but when you think about climate change, how do you normally approach the issue? I think that the evidence of these changes, these hotter summers, these warmer winters, these big storms that just keep coming 
out of nowhere, it seems like we kind of have to think about these things. And it makes you kind of makes you speculate about the fact that perhaps humans have been interacting with the climate a little bit. We've been messing with the biochemistry of the planet. And that's not something that always is very positive for the world. You know, the world can take a lot. Nature can take a lot, a big time beating from humans. And it has been for a while. But after a while, it, it starts to push back a little bit and say, hey, maybe you shouldn't be dumping all these chemicals into my oceans so very much. Justin, I wanted to get your take on when, uh, what Michael McGonigal said about the lack of hope or having, having no reason to hope. Do, what, what did you think about that? Did you, were you taken aback? I think that the issue of hope is so overplayed in society, just as what he was saying, in that if you want to talk about tangible solutions or things that people can do, you have to bring this aspect of hope into it in a lot of environmental circles or even in addressing the mainstream. And that hope that the system can continue on in its current form is just continually being dashed day by day. And I think there is a particular handicap, as we've discussed on previous episodes, in the United States on dealing with optimism and dealing with things that don't fit into our definition of optimism. It's like some people just aren't able to handle it and process it. And like Paul Kingsnorth was saying, everything's just a technological solution. And the whole climate change energy debate has just become has just become about changing how we generate our energy, you know, and using less fossil fuels and just, you know, we'll knock out a coal plant here and we'll build some wind turbines and solar panels here and everything will start to sort itself out. But it's really so much deeper than that. It's really a cultural issue about how our species sees its relationship to the environment and how we think about how we actually exist on this planet. And I think that Paul Kingsnorth was spot on when he said that in many ways we're all climate denialists. We're all not recognizing our role in continuing these the issue of climate change. We're all not willing to take a step down in our lifestyle to really solve these environmental issues. And just to give you an idea of how intractable the global environmental issues really are, do you really think that people in the developed world would be willing to take a two or four or eight times reduction in their living standards just to, one, allow people in developing world, in the developing world, to have an acceptable material standard of living, and two, to limit the material and energy throughput through our industrial civilization to a point where it's actually sustainable, I really don't think that's something that anybody's going to choose voluntarily. It's about, you know, having nice clothes and about having a fancy MacBook or about having, you know, fancy iPods, things that I have and things that I do, I can't even do them. And I think that even if there was a politician who understood the severity of the problem, he or she wouldn't even get elected because they would be saying all of these things that completely run counter to what people want to do, such as heavily taxing any kind of vehicle transport or outright banning private car ownership and using some kind of like public car co-op systems. Like these are things that some people will choose to do willingly. But if these kinds of changes were being mandated by some kind of larger um, entity like a government, most people would never vote for that person if they were advocating those things. And so we find ourselves in this catch-22 situation where the solutions we actually have to implement to survive can't be voted on and can't be implemented at a larger level. So we're all just kind of stuck with the aftermath. Or worse, they'd probably be branded un-American and, and people would riot against them and try to assassinate them. Yeah, but not even in the United States, in any major country, 
the solutions that would need to be implemented are completely counter to what anyone would vote for. You know, even here in Canada, if you voted for, you know, a left party that you thought maybe would do better, the left parties are still talking about infinite growth on a finite planet. And even so, the Green Party still talks about growth. And so how do you really get past that whole growth mantra? I don't really know. One thing I did like about what Michael McGonigal was saying is that, you know, we're sold all this stuff as a particular notion and idea that we always want to jump on, like, uh, you know, owning a car and we see that as the goal or owning a house and we see that as the goal. But what if you started saying to people, like, if you didn't have a car, you could have two extra months of vacation because of the additional money that you would have. I would love that. I know. I think a lot of people would say that they loved it. But you can't do it through the labor system that we use now. And you can't do it because of the transportation system that we use now. And to find affordable housing that's in dense urban environments where you don't have to own a car is sometimes pretty difficult to find decent housing. Well, Um, what about people who argue that say that these westernized countries are too spread out? You know, the United States is an enormous country, and the car is so very integrated into our whole transportation system, into our whole agricultural system. I mean, the automobile and the combustion engine is extremely integrated into the culture of this country, and I'm sure in Canada as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in the future, there's just going to be areas that are completely abandoned because one, what's already happening, the capital scarcity induced through issues of peak oil and peak resources are starting to hit hard. So more people are not able to afford cars. But in a few years, be it two, five, ten years, when the actual you know fuel scarcity issues start hitting heavily – whole areas that are completely vehicle dependent are just going to be abandoned. And if you don't live in an area where you can bike or ride big vans or have access through public transit, no one's going to find those areas desirable because they're not accessible. And then the property values will collapse even further. So there are tons of areas where it's not viable to live without a car. And that's something that's going to end up meaning that whatever property is there is basically worthless because people will abandon it. Or they'll just move to motor scooter transportation as the way of getting around, which I would not be opposed to. But I think what Paul Kingsnorth brought up was a really good point about how it's not like he's doing all this stuff with the Dark Mountain Project because he wants to make some political statement. He's doing it because he just likes doing it. And for me, that's the same motivation that I bring to doing each of these podcast episodes. They're really a lot of work, but they're also a lot of fun. And it's just stuff that we like doing. And it's just something that we enjoy putting together. And that's really what it's about, is if you focus on the big global picture of the global debt issues or global financial collapse or fraud or, you know, corrupt and broken government systems, it can get really depressing and it can be really overwhelming. But if you can find an area where you have at least a few people that you can work with these issues on and do something constructive like what Paul Kingsnorth was saying in, you know, scything or, you know, doing gardens or, you know, building houses or addressing inequities in society, then it can be a really positive thing and it can be really energizing. And so... I feel very fortunate to be in that type of situation, and I hope that more people can find themselves in those situations. But to move on, we're very excited to start having some regular segments on the show. And one of those irregular segments features one of our past guests, 
John Michael Greer. So we've talked to John Michael Greer extensively. We've had two interviews with him. He's been on our show twice. And we thought that he would make a great reoccurring segment on this show. We want to open up a area of our show where he can talk about some things that he's interested, some things that he's feeling passionate about. Maybe it'll relate to the show. Maybe it won't. But he's a very interesting fellow. And we want to let his words filter out to the world. The problem is that the environmental movement, as we have known it, went through the usual process by which any society deals with its deviants. That is to say, it finds something harmless for them to do with their time. Back in the 1960s and the 1970s, the environmental movement was not harmless. It was actually making changes, it was getting legislation pushed through, it was getting a very great deal of public support by pointing out things like, oh, say, the fact that uh, a number of the rivers in, in middle America were catching on fire every summer because they were so loaded with pollutants. Um, it was not engaging in the kind of uh, checked book activism we get nowadays where it's just a matter of, you know, you get all kinds of um, flyers in the mail from this group and that group. We need your money to help fight this. Of course, no fighting actually takes place. It's purely a matter of sending outraged letters to the media and to, to politicians, which, which are roundly ignored. But it does a very good job of maintaining um, certain relatively highly paid executives in, in you know, their highly paid positions in, in nonprofits supported by donations. You have just a, the abandonment of everything that gave the environmental movement its clout back in the 60s and 70s, above all the willingness on the part of environmentalists to accept the lifestyle they were trying to talk other people into doing. I call this the Al Gore effect for obvious reasons. Um, Al Gore could have been an incredibly effective voice for um, climate change activism, except there he was with his frequent flyer miles and his huge air-conditioned mansion and all kinds of things like that. And people looked at that and said, oh, okay, he's a hypocrite, and mapped that onto the rest of the climate change activists. Generally speaking, I saw very few people active in that movement who were willing to accept the decrease in carbon footprint that they were saying everybody in the world had, had to engage in. And so they shot themselves through both cheeks. If you're going to be talking about austerity, if you're going to be talking about asceticism, you need to be willing to adopt that lifestyle yourself. People knew that in the 60s and 70s. That's why you had environmental activists back then who were getting rid of their cars, environmental activists back then who were not flying, who were living in low-impact houses, who were generating their you know, the little electricity they used from wind and sun, and people were impressed by that. People were going, wow, okay, A, these people are serious. They're not just hypocrites. They're not just trying to, trying to get me to pay their salaries. B, well, you know, that actually doesn't look like too bad a way to live, Maybe I could try doing some of that. And, of course, that's the problem. Because if people, if people got really deeply into living that way, um, well, that would basically be the end of industrial society. Because industrial society depends on an endless growth in the amount of goods and services that each person uses up. That's what we call economic growth. It's just you have to maximize waste. So um, basically, those in, after, the, after the Reagan counter-revolution of 1980, those environmental groups that were willing to play along and, and uh, you know, console themselves with, with checkbook activism, and they, were, they became kind of junior partners in the Democratic Party, which is where progressive causes go to die, where those that actually tried to stay true to their, to their ideals had their funding cut off, were marginalized, sidelined, ignored by everybody, so that environmentalism 
became a kind of a yuppie hobby of insisting that other people ought to live to a li- according to a li- to lifestyles that the people who are actually making the protests won't willing to live by, or that you know well we really ought to do something for those poor baby seals. So basically, that's how the environmental movement was gutted. That's how it has become turned into a lobbying group for wind for the wind turbine industry. It's not helping the environment. It's not helping anybody because it's based on an acceptance of business as usual and a desire to simply get a nice coat of green spray paint over it. Barack Obama um, came strong, came charging into office with all kinds of talk about hope and change, and then gave us the third term of George W. Bush. His policies have been identical to those of Bush. He simply, it's as though he had no idea what he was going to do once he became president, other than smile and nod and you know occupy the Oval Office. It's it's really unfortunate in a certain sense that we don't have a constitutional monarchy here the way they have in Britain, because Obama would be very well suited to the role that's currently filled by say Queen Elizabeth. You know, opening shops shopping malls, doing these very you know, formal, officious visits with, uh, with foreign, foreign ambassadors and important things like that. Nothing that actually affects the running of the country, you understand. He's very good at that. And so in the same way, when, you know, when there's some kind of natural disaster in Britain, uh, usually Prince Charles, if one of the royals, gets sent out to shake people's hands and, and do the sort of mourner-in-chief routine. And Obama's very good at that. It's just he's a completely incompetent president. Those of us in the United States had had you know, would be well advised to watch what's going on in Europe. The austerity measures that are being imposed there now will be opposed here in due time, and um, we'll see what happens. As it is, it's I think I think Jim Kunstler is right. Europe has had um, a very long window of peace and prosperity comparatively. It's been a very mellow place, and I'm sorry to say there's reason to think that stage is coming to an end right around us. History, you know, uh, Francis Fukuyama was wrong. History is not over, unfortunately. The, the talk that I've been doing about denial has been based on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief. And those have become absolutely standard in the Pico Oil community because we've all seen people work through them. You've got, you've got the stage of denial. No, 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 they'll come up with something. We can't possibly be about to run out of fuel, about you know, oil. The, the, the earth has to be like full of a creamy nougat center of oil or something like that, whatever it takes. Um, then we get anger. It's all somebody else's fault. Who's the one to blame? You know, we get our scapegoating activities. Um, bargaining. Well, okay, I understand an industrial civilization is, is coming to an end, but if I, if I like invest in a nice lifeboat eco-village, that means I'll be fine, right? Um, then depression, and you get the humanity is an ecocidal ape. We are doomed. We, we deserve to be doomed. Gaia should just squish us like a bug and toss us into the dumpster of, of, of extinction. And then finally, you get to acceptance, which is the point at which people get over the emotional side of it and actually start doing something constructive. There's a lot of people in denial right now. The last six months or so, we've seen a torrent of garbage. I'll be polite and call it that. Um, Garbage often has salvage value. This stuff doesn't. Complete counterfactual drivel coming out of the out of the mass media the new york times claiming that the, the the united states is now a petroleum exporter when what's happening is that we're shipping small amounts of gasoline that americans are too poor to afford and selling it to con- to more prosperous countries overseas we've had people blathering about the bakken shale and oil shale and fracking as though this is not something that's been known about for 40 years uh, as though it isn't literally scraping the bottom of the bed. 
and pretending that that means the barrel's full. This is denial. And this is a good sign. The fact that people are yelling, screaming, bellowing about how peak oil is wrong, they're talking about peak oil. The conspiracy of silence is broken. Next comes anger. That should be a doozy. John Michael Greer equating Barack Obama to the Queen of England. That is, you know, how what's a better analogy really right now than the president of being compared to a defunct monarch? I'm just glad I have a mute function on my microphone because otherwise that whole segment would have been filled with my laughter at John Michael Greer's witty comments. So. Yeah, the mute button is a very <laughs> helpful thing. It's very exciting that we're going to be joined with John Michael Greer on a regular basis. Yeah, and actually, if you have any questions for John Michael Greer that you'd like for us to stack up and have ready for him, send some questions in, post them on our Facebook wall, or uh, shoot us an email, or leave them in voicemail format, and we'll play the voicemails, we'll read the emails out to John Michael Greer. It can be anything, it can be you know organic uh, agriculture questions, You know what's going on this season, um, what kind of uh, druid ritual should I do to bring in this summer solstice, or uh, you know fall equinox anything. Who's going to win on American Idol? I mean, I know John Michael Greer doesn't have a television, but I'm sure he's got an opinion on who's going to win. Just know that that option is available for you. And speaking of options that are available, we have many people who have taken the option to donate to our show. We've had a lot of people that have taken the option to donate on our show. And in, so in our last episode, we extended a very special offer to all of the extra environmentalist listeners and even to the non-listeners that anyone sending in a donation of $30 or more would receive a very extra special extra environmentalist t-shirt along with some stickers and we've been sending t-shirts around the world thanks to everybody who sent in their donations and also received a t-shirt we sent a t-shirt off to fergal in scotland so thanks so much in glasgow scotland so thanks so much for requesting one from the uk and hope you're surviving your country's olympics <laughs> we we heard from uh, nick in canada uh, we sent him out a T-shirt, and he is going to be enjoying a medium, and it's going to be a great time because he's going to wear it all around town. Yeah, exactly. It's great to send out some extra environmentalist gear to oil country in Calgary. And we had an American as well over in Oregon who we sent a T-shirt out to Brent, and Brent is going to be enjoying a T-shirt as well. Brent let us know that just like quasi-periodic, he listens to the show from his tractor so we really hope that the podcasting medium can help facilitate people who find themselves doing local agriculture because then it gives you something to do while you're out weeding or planting all day. After the show, Justin, Justin commented he, he was wondering what percentage of our listening audience rides a tractor on a daily basis. And I, I told him that it's probably a pretty high percentage. So thanks to Fiergal, Nick, and Brent for sending in their donations, helping us to support the show, and receiving a t-shirt and some stickers to help that along. And also Brent wrote in to let us know that he's going to be playing some of our episodes out at Burning Man. So if, if you're adding to Burning Man this year and you hear some extra environmentalists playing, be sure to say hey to Brent. Or if you see him wearing his t-shirt at Burning Man, be sure to say hey to Brent and let him know that you're also an extra environmentalist listener. Our offer still stands, so anybody donating $30 or more, we will send you a t-shirt anywhere in the entire world. We are sending them everywhere. Uh, if you don't have, want to send in $30, you can send in any amount, and that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. You will receive stickers if any donation over $10, and for with any donation, you will receive our extra special 
bonus content that Justin cooks up every season. So, just like Brent, who listens from his tractor, we also got a very special voicemail contribution from someone else who listens from their tractor. Hey guys, it's Quasi Periodic. So this concept has been haunting me from the book Breakthrough. The book basically focuses on how prosperity fuels the environmentalism of the 70s that led to the Clean Water Act and all of that. They try to demonstrate that without that prosperity, or at least a sense of prosperity, that Sachigraha keeps coming to mind, you know, sense of compassion for the whole planet. In another sense, moving up Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. Without that prosperity, that doesn't happen, which leads me to worry a bit about this whole austerity thing that we keep hearing everywhere. And I know that there's protests against austerity, but it's kind of bigger than just the problem of, you know, not having sufficient funding for schools and everything. If there isn't prosperity, there won't be the generosity of soul to see the world as one. The other thing that makes me think of is disaster capitalism. If everybody's got an attitude of austerity and I got to get mine, we're all in crisis mode, and that sort of fear-based thinking is something that capitalism is good at exploiting, whether it's frack our water table for gas or go buy guns. Uh, anyway, that's what's continued to be on my mind, and I wanted to try to get that across a little better. Uh, I listened to your back catalog uh, two weeks, a couple weeks ago. It's pretty satisfying. I'm really uh, interested and concerned about where we go from here with this whole concept because I can't. You know, peak oil uh, is not something that I can uh, spend my time thinking about anymore. I can't think about the global problems at this point. I'm focused on myself and discovering how crazy I've been my entire life and fucking farming. Um, there was a point I wanted to make about farming. Um, one is that I feel really comfortable calling y'all because y'all do somehow this great job of just making it a really open and comfortable conversation. The other thing is that I can actually do it while I'm standing here looking at my beats. So I just stood up. Yes, I'm just like standing out here on the phone. That's a really good point, and there's a great point that you left on a previous episode about how when we started feeling our self-autonomy, our autonomy taken away from us in terms of the ability to grow our own food and support ourselves economically, that's when we started going down this track and having to trade in our autonomy to this economic system that doesn't serve us and causes us to rack up huge debts and, and essentially live as debt slaves, as we've talked about before. And like you were saying today, without this feeling of prosperity, taking action on the environment doesn't seem like it's something that's worth doing because just scraping to get by on fighting for basic needs becomes so much of a priority. And one point I wanted to jump on there, I think that's really a great point because some people might think that the economic collapse that we're going through might actually help the environment. But in Greece, what they've been experiencing is that people are burning more uh, wood out of their wood stoves because they can't afford the oil they used to heat with, and it's destroying the air quality because everybody's burning wood and it's creating tremendous amounts of soot in the air. And I think that's a great example of why just having an economy fall apart isn't going to save the environment because people will switch to dirtier options because their ability to choose economically has been diminished. When you're struggling to live, like Justin just said, and you're in Greece and you're burning wood just to try to stay warm and keep your family happy and dry, it becomes less of a necessity to think about the environment as a whole. 
Well, thanks as always for your voicemail contributions, Quasi Periodic, and we're glad that you feel comfortable calling in. You know, if anybody else wants to call in on a regular basis, we have some more voicemails. Hello, uh, Seth and Justin. My name's Nathan, and I'm calling to let you know about my drought stories. I'm a farmer in Ontario. Uh, I run a small direct-to-market sort of CSA mixed farm, and most of our animals are on grass. And you wouldn't think that the price of corn would be affecting my products. But since so many farmers around here in Ontario have turned their pasture fields into corn because of the high corn prices, um, it means there's less hay available. And now that the drought really set in and the corn yields are down, the hay yields are also down. And hay has doubled in price or more, and it's pretty hard to get hold of. I know farmers are now feeding hay to their cows and sheep in the fields where they would normally be eating grass off the ground because there's no grass available. So we're, we ourselves are scrambling to try and find hay to feed our animals throughout the winter. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have to butcher uh, large portions of our herds and flock, which will set us back quite a, quite a few, uh, maybe a couple of years in terms of time. So, yeah, this drought's pretty depressing. And uh, for anyone who lives in the city, I suggest you just maybe go take a drive out of the country and see all of the withered, desiccated corn stalks. And you'll get a sense of just how serious this drought is turning out to be. Thanks so much for your show. It's really great. Okay, bye. Thanks, Nathan, for calling in and letting us know the severity of the drought situation. And I'm not able to follow the mainstream news in Canada or the U.S., but I really hope that it's being discussed quite a bit and that people are aware of how severely this is going to affect their lifestyles and the cost of living, um, not only in North America, but also all around the world. It's really going to lead to some very serious food shortages all around the world and likely uh, uprisings, revolutions, regime changes all around the world, or maybe even the developed world. I can't begin to imagine what this planet's going to look like in a few months as these price spikes really start setting in, along with the austerity clampdown due to debt issues. So it's really going to be serious, but we'll be talking about it all here on The Extra Environmentalist. If you like what you're listening to and you think that this is important stuff and you want to hear more of these episodes, feel free to check out our website at extraenvironmentalist.com where we have a whole wealth of podcast archives that you can dig through at your convenience and find ones that you like and download them to your iPod and play them for your friends. Burn them CDs, give them as gifts. They're great gifts. You can also check out our Twitter feed at xenvironmental where we've been putting up tons of tweets, getting more and more followers every single day. Facebook is a great place to join the conversation, have your voice in the conversation with the Action Environmentalists. If you have a great question for uh, John Michael Greer, feel free to email the show at podcast.actionenvironmentalist.com. And you can also hear us on some new radio stations across Canada. Not only are we in some radio stations here in British Columbia, but we're also now in Kingston, Ontario, on CFRC every Monday at 6 p.m. You can tune in and have a listen to The Extra Environmentalist. And you can also tune in on CJUM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, every Thursday at 9 a.m., as well as a new station here in British Columbia in Burnaby. So that brings us up to a total of five radio affiliates, which we are very fortunate to be on. But do not worry. We're not moving our focus away from doing a podcast and producing content from that. Our radio shows will just include content that we've produced for the podcast. That's right. 
So once again, thanks for listening. And for all of you wonderful people out there, the season is right for camping. So get out there, hang a hammock, and walk 12 miles with a backpack on your back. experience ourselves as isolated centers of awareness and action placed in a world that is not us, that is foreign, alien, other, which we confront. But in the point of view I'm expressing, the real you is not a puppet which life pushes around. We've been hoodwinked into the feeling that we exist only inside our skins. That is a hallucination. It's just as nutty as anybody could be, like a fruitcake, you know, who thinks he's Napoleon or thinks he's a poached egg and goes around finding a piece of toast to sit on. Just like that, a hallucination. We need to experience ourselves in such a way that we could say that our real body is not just what's inside the skin, but our whole total external environment. Because if we don't experience ourselves that way, we mistreat our environment. We treat it as an enemy. We try to beat it into submission. And if we do that, comes disaster. We exploit the world we live in. We don't treat it with love and gentleness and respect. We kick the world around in revenge for feeling that really we are puppets which the world kicks around. You are a function of this total galaxy bounded by the Milky Way, and that furthermore, this galaxy is a function of all other galaxies. And that vast thing that you see far off, far off, far off with telescopes, and you look and look and look, one day you're going to wake up and say, why, that's me. the next extra environmentalist, Chris Nelder, on oil, gas, and energy transition. We're telling ourselves a lot of stories right now uh, about energy, and we're going to be telling ourselves different stories in the future. And, uh, you know, something that I really try to do is think about where this is all going. You know, what does the future look like? If you pick up any, you know, major newspaper today, you'll see a new story that started to go around in the last year or so about energy independence coming to the U.S., from these really low-grade resources like the Bakken Shale or the Eagle Ford or, or so on. What those stories aren't telling you is what it really takes to produce oil from this stuff. Um, you know, they're not really telling you that as the IEA recently identified in its paper uh, Golden Rules for a Golden Age of Natural Gas, that the U.S. would have to drill half a million new gas wells between now and 2035 
to achieve this vision of, of natural gas for the future. And that, wow. and that of those half a million wells to be drilled in the U.S., a lot of them are going to be drilled in areas where people live. When you believe in things that you don't understand and you suffer nation-state failing? Are you finding that you might have a potential lack of confidence in your nation's finances? Did you think that the airline industry was going under? Well, not anymore. Let's get on board this capital flight and get going! Capital Flights is operating daily from some of the top European capitals, flying you to the nicest island strongholds where you can protect your money. Ain't no taxes in the Cayman Islands! Where all the service is first class, even if our clientele isn't. Bring me another martini with a fire on top! Hop on Capital Flights Airlines, where the only luggage service fees you'll have are the tips you need to provide to your Bangladeshi slave service because you feel guilty about their horrible lives. Man, this money's so heavy! Give me a steak! I want it rare! There's plenty of room for your suitcases full of cash and the Capital Flight Airlines luggage overheads. Whether your money comes from a British monarch or a Texas oil well, we serve all types of clientele that are in the upper crust of society's finest souffles. Guess which one I am! Even our crassest customers don't have to apologize for complaining to turn off their iPads when the plane starts. I ain't crash, and I ain't turn my iPad off neither! Capital Flights is operating regularly out of every major city across the European continent and coming soon to the American continent, flying you to any remote island wherever you can stash your money. Yeah! Capital Flight Airlines will make sure that you and the $32 trillion in cash that some of the world's richest people are stashing in offshore accounts can be protected even when as millions starve around the globe. Capital Flight Airlines. It's one airline that won't be out of business anytime soon. You can hear it straight from one of our top oil wealth customers, Buck Ferguson. I'm Buck Ferguson! My money's on Capital Flight! Capital Flight Airlines will take your money anywhere.